Trail and Ultra Runners, what is going on? What's happening? Welcome to another episode of the Coopcast. As always, I am Coach Jason Coop. In this episode of the podcast, I am turning the tables a bit and I will not be your humble host. Now, don't worry, I'm not doing a sponsored content takeover. Y'all know I would never do that to you. This week, I'm giving up the reins and I'm letting coaching industry veteran and the co-founder of Training Peaks, Dirk Friel, host the show today. And the reason for that is that this week, we are gonna discuss the business of coaching, which is a topic that I have wanted to cover for a very long time and one that I feel I could provide some insight on having been a professional coach for nearly 25 years and operated in nearly every capacity of both business and coaching possible during that time frame. And in true ultra marathon style, we have a banger of a show lined up for you that is two and a half hours in length. So y'all buckle up and get ready. On the podcast today, we have a panel of coaches and business owners to give us some insight into how the industry works. Y'all join me in welcoming Heather Hart, who is the owner and founder of Heart Endurance and Strength, as well as two-time Coopcast offender Jeff Browning, aka Bronco Billy. My goal with this podcast is to peel the curtain back on how coaching works. And in doing so, the entire panel and myself are obnoxiously transparent about how our revenue, our income, expenses, headcounts, coach to athlete ratio, and really our entire businesses work. Now, before we get into the dialogue, I'd like to express my personal gratitude for both Heather and Jeff for coming on the show and being so open about how their businesses operate. As y'all are about to find out, we really don't duck or dodge any of the questions posed by Dirk. That takes some humility as well as a willingness to be an open book about sensitive topics like your income and how your business operates. The second thing I'd like to mention is, is that this is not a bigger is better or a better structure battle royale. I hope the content in this podcast inspires new and existing coaches alike, as well as athletes who are navigating the coaching landscape. There are many ways to deliver coaching, orchestrate coach to athlete ratios that are appropriate for the service delivered and design pricing structures that are commiserate with all of the above. And although we do have a fair amount of compare and contrast throughout the podcast, coming up with one best format was not an end goal. Second, although this is a business of coaching podcast, right from the onset, I want to make it crystal clear that our customers are athletes. So while some of the dialogue might seem a bit cold and even impersonal, make no mistake that the reason we have the structure in place that we do is in order to put the needs of our athletes first. That structure that each of us has is very much a reflection of the successes and mistakes we've each made in this arena. Finally, I'd be remiss not to mention some of the background on how this podcast starts. When I first originated this idea, I knew that gathering a, pa a panel together to divulge our various business models was going to be met with some resistance. Now let's face it, we're talking about how much money we make, how our businesses operate and the like, so I get some of the hesitation. 
I even had to work with one of the companies that I work with, CTS, to get permission to put this podcast on. So in order to soften this aspect up a bit, I enlisted the help of Dirk to come in and serve as a neutral moderator. I then formulated a list of potential guests and gave them all the same deal. Here's what you can expect to discuss. Dirk will come up with the final list of questions and moderate the discussion. Everyone has to be transparent. And the transparency includes me. And if anything, I have to be the most transparent of all as it's my podcast after all. Now, I did expect to get some no's from my initial list of panelists. But if I'm being honest, and you guys know that I always am, I was a bit perplexed at the sheer number of declines and non-responses, as well as the I'm not even give it a second thought type of no's. I did reach out to Megan and David Roche, who declined on account that they don't focus on their business operations. Ian Sharman, who declined, shall we say, rather bluntly. The Evoke, the Evoke coaching group declined on account of their business being new. And there were a similar number of non-responses from other sole proprietors and coaches and coaching companies. Now, for those of you that are saying that I'm just being mean or whatever, that's not the point. And I want you to listen very closely to this next part. Each one of these individuals has their own reasons and a simple decline of a podcast request should not be an indictment of anything. I decline interview requests and podcast requests all the time for various reasons. However, I'd be remiss if I didn't at least mention this aspect because I do think that it is part of the dialogue. And that's exactly what we are going to lead in with. So sit back, buckle up, strap in for a good one here. This is our business of ultramarathon coaching roundtable hosted by Dirk Friel with myself, Jeff Browning, and Heather Hart. Jason, Heather, Jeff, thanks for joining me. This is a unique position for me to be in to actually take over the Coopcast. I feel very honored. Thank you, Jason, for inviting me to play a part and kind of be the ringleader. Yeah, I might regret that decision, but thank you for <laughs> thank you for can, agreeing to do you it. You know, I can mess up as much as I you know, I want on your on yours, your dime. No. That's true. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Very true. Yeah, and I haven't met Heather and uh Jeff before, so really nice to meet you two. Going to be a really good conversation around business of coaching. Yes. Pretty much all over other podcasts that I guess runners or coaches listen to really have you know, the focus more on the technical side of intervals and heart rate zones, all that stuff. So this is going to be fresh, great new content for folks. Very valuable, obviously, for coaches, um, but also for athletes. You know, each coach is different. The investments they make in their business are different. Their backgrounds, their education, how they run their business. That can play a part in, you know, how you go about maybe choosing a coach. So we're kind of going to kind of lift the veil here on 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 some not really secrets, but things people don't normally talk about within the running community or coaching community. So having said that, Jason, you, you, you had a difficult time kind of getting this crew together, I heard. And uh, I don't know, a little bit hard to recruit. What are your thoughts on why that was? Well, I, I mean, it's something that both you and I have seen throughout all of our coaching experience, because you can remember, you know, when Training Peaks first started and then CTS first started kind of in the late 90s and early 2000s, 
and remote-based endurance coaching became a thing, everybody was really guarded about what they were doing. And oh, yeah. I kind of forgive the I kind of forgive the industry because it was novel at the time. Like there was a brand new thing. The internet could barely support it, to be honest with you. Uh, just with the dial-up speeds and the technology that existed with how we could transfer files from the athlete to the coach and all those things. And I, I kind of get that guarded approach. But I do think that one of the big one of the big turning points in turning it into an actual profession where a large contingency of people can make a good full-time living at remote-based endurance coaching, which is what, what we do, was the fact that we did pull the veil back. And we being a collection of coaches, not just people at CTS, but also other coaches in the industry. And, and Dirk, you're, you're, you're a part of that. Pulled the curtain back and said, hey, listen, this is what we're learning. This is where we screwed up. This is where we've done very well. This is how we should price ourselves in the marketplace. And this is, you know, what commands this and all that other stuff. I do think that that was a big, a, a big turning point, but it was not always that case. And it's, so it's been interesting to me when I was trying to set this podcast up that I, I found a little bit of that initial, a little bit of that initial resistance to actually coming on and pulling the veil back. And I get it. Not everybody wants to talk about what they make and you know, their business structure and things like that. I, 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 I kind of totally get that, but I do firmly believe that good coaching is not just good for the athletes. Obviously it's good for coaches. Good coaching is good for coaches. And the opposite is also true. Poor coaching, poor business structure, poor orchestration of the things that go underneath the hood is bad for the coaches as a, as a business. So I take an, I take opportunities like this very seriously because, you know, I've earned my full-time living in being a full-time professional coach for the last 25 years. And I continue, and I, and I intend to do that for the remainder of my career. So I view it as something as where if I can add to the whole ecosystem and help people kind of understand what I at least have found has worked and doesn't work and, you know, peak, you know, uh, pop the hood open a little bit. I think that everybody is better is better off. And also I'm better off because, you know, I can learn from a lot of people as well as I've done in, you know, many different coaching conferences and things like that, that we've all been a part of. Yeah, definitely legitimizing this career path. You know, it, you sort of have to get standards out there, right? And the only way to do that is to share. And then the tide lifts all boats. You know, if, if, if we can like share more of this, uh, Heather, any, any thoughts on, you know, your experience when you were asked to, to come on board and, and maybe where have you learned uh, about other coaching businesses? Yeah. Um, I think taking a broader step back just in our society as a whole, talking about money is often taboo, you know, talking about our income and how much money we're making, it makes people nervous. So, um, it doesn't surprise me that there was a, you know, a little pushback on people wanting to participate. But, um, when we started, I, I didn't, it was so hard to even think, where do we price ourselves where there was nothing out there? I mean, it's still to this day, you can look at people's coaching websites and there's no pricing info. It's, um, you know, oh. contact me for details. So yeah, there's, there's certainly, I'm sure many reasons why people are secretive about it, but, um, I'm an open book, so I'm happy to talk about it. <laughs> and, and Jeff, you, you were in a different industry prior to coming to coaching. You had experiences already from another industry that maybe helped you kickstart this business? But then what were your experiences when you entered this career as a, as a coach? I had some of the similar issues that Heather had is where to price, where I should start, you know, um, 
I came from, you know, graphic design and art direction and marketing and branding and uh, had my own consulting firm for 17 years. And, uh, um, and so I'd run my own business. I'd worn all the hats for a long, long time. And I already had a, a business structure. You know, I was already an S corp at the time or an LLC S corp. And, and so I just kind of did a DBA at first. And then I've, I've evolved that with my, you know, cause I, I use a bookkeeper. I use a full accounting service, like full service, all in house. So I, I pull from all that already and they give me, you know, consulting and I have my own business lawyer and all that kind of stuff. So that was already in place. So for me, I just needed to figure out where to price, what services to offer and what the industry standard was. So for me, I'd always come from a, a background of internet startups and that kind of stuff. So it was always like, what's best practices, right? So immediately I'm looking at people like Coop and because um, he was an industry standard. And then, you know, and then also looking at um, other businesses like Ian Sharman. Sharman and I were trained together, um, you know, you know, Sharman Ultra Coaching. So he and I had chatted a lot. He's really the one responsible for kind of giving me that nudge into coaching, at, you know, being a student of the sport for so long and being in the sport deeply as a competitive athlete. I really uh, was interested in that side of the sport. And so that's kind of how I got into it. But, you know, I, I think the hardest part was just getting information, you know, at the beginning for me, like yeah. that, I just wanted information. I you know, a, a, a podcast like this would have been awesome, you know, but it wasn't around then. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. Well, we're, we're like seven years too late on this yeah, one. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? Like I, I really, for me, it was easy because I already had a, I was already working from home. I was already had a full, you know, you know, command station. I already had all the infrastructure in place. All I needed to do was figure out my services, build a website, which I did for a living. And so I'm really come from the tech UI, UX, um, user experience, you know, Uh user interface. So technology is kind of my background and branding and marketing. So for me, that was really easy to just kind of those other pieces were easy to put in place. Now I can see how that would be really challenging for some people if they don't have that background. But for me, it was easy and I just needed to do that. And the first year was really, you know, kind of me ramping up like small steps. I took, you know, little baby steps the first first year and 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 it became like, okay, 20% of my business, then 30% of my business, then 50% of my business. And I'm like, for a while, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm doing design projects and I'm coaching. And I, and I was like really juggling for about you know, six or eight months till I finally was like, you know what, I, I just got to make, you know, at some point you got to make the move. Right. And I just made the move to full time, yeah. you know, in 2017. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's, that's a great kind of scenario to have where you kind of ramp into one over time when you have this other job that's supporting along the way. And then you make that decision to just take the leap, take the risk. I was absolutely there with you in the year 2000, 2002 with training peaks, you know, um, Heather, any kind of, what, how, where did you come to coaching from? Yeah, I had a similar experience in that I was initially um, personal training, teaching group fitness, and also blogging, you know, on the side. And so I was making an income from all of those things, which are all pretty flexible, which gave me the opportunity to mix the coaching in slowly, slowly, slowly. And then, you know, like Jeff said, there came a point when I was like, okay, I need to either go all in and do this full time or, or not. And so, um, 
it certainly was a lot easier for me to do that than if I was working a traditional nine to five for sure. Yeah. Jason, how'd you get into all this many years ago? Uh, kind of serendipitously. I mean, it was a very opposite story, uh, which I think is interesting for a lot of, for, for a lot of people with this compare and contrast. You know, I had a biochemistry and genetics degree and kind of fell out of love with my job prospects kind of just before graduating. I didn't want to be a bench lab scientist and sit behind test tubes and graduated cylinders and beakers and stuff and, and stuff like that. Yeah, but I knew I loved coaching and there was not a really, there weren't any really good outlets for it. Um, and I just happened to stumble upon a, 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 a very poorly paid internship uh, over at CTS in 2000 and just kind of fell in love with the coaching process then. So I've been doing it, you know, full time ever since that, uh, kind of ever since that point. So I didn't have any of these like transition points that, you know, Heather and Jeff had, um, uh, kind of early on in their career, I jumped into it kind of right there. And that's a lot of luck to be honest with you. It was, you know, kind of right person, right time, right, uh, environment, uh, right environment around me, right people around me, uh, to where I could kind of, where I could definitely kind of grow into it. And a lot of these things, a lot of these initial stumbling blocks that, that Jeff and Heather, Heather mentioned, that happen on the business side, but also on the coaching side, we're not going to talk about that a lot, like the coaching mentorship piece, like how to actually learn to become a coach. Those two aspects, the business and the mentorship side were kind of taken care of for me because I had an environment around me where that was partially influenced by the Olympic Training Center in, in Colorado Springs and also influenced by CTS being a, a business, a for-profit business uh, yeah. at the time. So I can't take credit for trying to figure out all of those things that, that Jeff and Heather have tried to figure out as, 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 as entrepreneurs, I had it kind of like served up to me on a platter and I really didn't appreciate it to be honest with you until about a decade later in my career. And like looking back and seeing people like Heather and Jeff try to start these things up, I'm like, Oh shit, they had a like way, way more difficult road than I did just kind of like walking into it. Yeah. I mean, that's a good point though. You don't have to dive in and start your own business. There are more opportunities now. There are larger coaching businesses there. If you're a growing business, you, you are looking for interns or assistant coaches. And so there are those opportunities you don't have to build from scratch or bootstrap. Um, but certainly a lot of what we'll talk about today has to do with that. There's a book that I highly recommend to, to new entrepreneurs called The E-Myth. And The E-Myth states that most small businesses start by technicians. You love the act of coaching, working with somebody, you know, or you are a plumber. You just love like working in plumbing, right? And that's what a coach is. They're, they're a technician. They're in the weeds, assigning, you know, planning, analyzing uh, workouts. And that's what, why you get involved. Um, and you're like, okay, I can make a business out of this. Well, how much do you know about entrepreneurship? You know, how much do you know about being a manager? Just because you're the world's best coach does not mean you will have a business that will survive at all, right? And it, it might be the complete opposite. So if we think through the lens of technician, entrepreneur, manager, you know, what were your own personal gaps? And Jeff, you might go back or Heather, you might go back to your previous, you know, work even before starting the coaching business because you started businesses prior to endurance coaching. Um, but what were your own personal gaps? 
um, that you had to learn along the way and, and make up for, and, you know, in terms of like being an entrepreneur and or manager? Yeah, I'll, um, well, I'll, I'll start by telling you my strengths. <laughs> We're certainly that, you know, I came from a background with a degree in exercise science. I had been working with clients and coaching them in person, training them in person. So I was super comfortable with that piece of it. From the blogging side, I knew how to market myself. I knew how to, you know, put myself out there, which is a huge piece as well. My gap was the business side. We've been, uh, my husband and I, you know, own the business together and we've been an official business since 2017. I think my CPA is still like fixing things we did wrong <laughs> all the way back then, you know, and um, yeah. she, she earns every penny we pay her because we're always like, can we do this? Can we do that? What We have no idea what we're doing on the business side of it. So that's been um, a, a very big learning process, really learning how to balance everything that needs to happen on the business side to keep the business running, to keep our coaches getting their paychecks and um, keep everything afloat in addition to coaching. Yeah. Awesome. Jeff. Mine was, uh, you know, I already had the design, branding, marketing, you know, stuff down. That was my, you know, I worked for advertising agencies and design firms before I went out on my own. And so when I went out on my own in 01, my biggest pain points were the bookkeeping side of things. I tried to do it myself for four or five years. Oh my gosh. I think I can't remember how much I paid the first time I went to a bookkeeping service that needed to fix my books um, because they were so bad. I mean, it's just not, you got to accept what you're, if you're an entrepreneur, you need to accept what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are. And then you need to leverage. I, at some point I started putting hourly, you know, hourly numbers around, okay, how much time am I spending in my books? I'm not doing them yeah. right. I'm doing it about 20% efficiency, you know, or something. And, and then finally it's like, well, I could pay someone to do this and they'll knock it out in like two hours a month or four hours a month. And then I'm only paying them an hourly for four hours a month and I'm and they're they're getting done. Right. And then I just hand it to my, you know, I hand it to my accountant when it comes tax season. It was, it was the most beautiful, like aha moment (laughs) in business. And, and so that, that one was one of the biggest ones probably was the bookkeeping and like the planning side of things. So I started leveraging other people. And then the other thing I came from was a technology background. So I was really comfortable with technology, websites, software. So like, you know, I knew how to demo software. I knew how to do a bunch of studies. That's how I came to training peaks. When I, you know, sat down, I demoed everything that was out there and, and training peaks when I started in 2016, you know, was the, obvious choice. And it still is. I've even demoed other stuff along the way and still stuck with training peaks because of that. So kudos to that, Dirk. So you didn't build it from with, from within <laughs> CTS did. Yeah. And so I didn't, oh, I, I didn't have to, man, I get to, I get to leverage it. Cause I started later when technology is really kind of more dialed. Yeah. It, it really, you know, that helped me a lot as a business. Um, cause that was already set up. So you know, that was a, that was a big one. Um, you know, the training side of things and like coaching side of things was a natural for me. I'm very social, you know, I have no problem talking as Jason knows, but I I also, you know, um, I can connect with a lot of different kinds of personalities. I've worked in tons of different business settings where anywhere from small internet startups to gigantic ones that grew like crazy, you know, two, 300 employees and you have to deal with every personality. And I was in a management position. So, you know, like, knowing how to like motivate different personalities that was already like ingrained in me. So by mm-hmm. the time I started coaching, so that just plays into like your skill set in coaching. 
and and so a, a lot of mine and I'd been a student of the sport as far as endurance training, you know, because I was I was competing um, for so long. I've been in the sport 23 years and then I was in, in, in endurance cycling for a decade before that. So I've always been like, you know, and that's always been my passion and hobby on the side of having this entrepreneurial graphic design background and running my own business. So I was always any spare time. I actually was spending in endurance, the endurance world, you know, it versus like, how do I make my graphic design business better? You know, yeah. I was like yeah, so yeah, yeah. sick of graphic yeah. design and branding by the time, you know, I turned off, you know, that part of me that I was like all in the endurance space. And so, you know, I came to coaching with like all self-taught 20 some years of reading everything out there. I've read every book on endurance training multiple times, reread them, highlighted them, earmarked pages, you know? So, so for me, like that was a natural progression and, and it was an easy progression because I was jaded by the time I'm 25 years in to art, you know, art direction and marketing. Sometimes you're branding products and services that you don't care about and it's kind of soul sucking. And so to step into the endurance, you know, where this passion is that I have on, on the side, you know, my wife used to, before I got paid for, to run a little bit as a, an athlete, um, you know, in the early days, you know, Jason can attest to this. There was no money in ultra running at all. And, um, you know, you got some free shoes and some, a kit and that's about it. And, uh, but yeah. like in the early days, like, you know, my wife would be like, why are you taking so much time to do this stupid sport? You know, it's a hobby. She just kept reminding me it's a hobby. And I'd be like, you know, when I got that first little tiny paycheck, I was like, it's no longer a hobby, um, <laughs> you know, so, yeah. uh, to justify training, but, but, you know, that whole time, that was like my passion project on the side that I wasn't getting paid for, but I loved it. I was reading, I consuming books. I'm a voracious reader. So I was like reading books constantly, you know, applying it to my own training, get anyone who would listen, you know, at foot zone in Bend, Oregon, for example, which was at the time was a big ultra running hub and, and training, you know, Max King was there and, and Ian Sharman. And, and so we were all like trading notes and we were like talking about training and philosophy. And so there, it was a really cool time in, in the early days of ultra running kind of, it, it was blossoming, right. So to speak in the late two thousands, early like 2008 through like 2014, that whole time was just like, you know, I was getting bombarded. We were all talking about this stuff. And, and so it was really a cool time. And, and for me, that was, that was kind of like, those were my weak, you know, my weaknesses were definitely like the business management side. And, and I had to, you know, I had to suck it up and learn what, you know, one of the things in ultra running is, you know, embrace the suck. And so mm -hmm. I had to embrace the suck, you know, when it came to the business side of things, the, the things I was, I wasn't very good at. And so I just leveraged yeah. other people and people who were special, specialized in that, at that side of things, whether it was a web developer, whether it was accounting or bookkeeping or, or, and then I've used business coaches over the years too. So I've leveraged business coaching relationships as well to get mentored, you know, and how to be better at a better entrepreneur, better business person, that kind of thing. Jason, you didn't start the business, but you've certainly had to be an entrepreneurial, like minds have an entrepreneurial mindset obviously be a manager, you know, hiring, firing staff, um, but opening up new markets, you know, how do we attack this new ultra running market? For example, that's very entrepreneurial. So where were your gaps and where did you maybe learn along the way? 
to fill those gaps. Well, I mean, a lot of people don't realize that like I first started as a full-time employee, right? I was a full-time employee. And so as I mentioned earlier, I didn't have a lot of the, I didn't really have a need for the business side of it, like Heather and uh, Jeff had mentioned earlier. And I kind of look at this along in this question of where my gaps are along the timeline of my career, which has kind of had three distinct phases to it. So the first phase, when I first started coaching, I needed to learn how to coach like period, like period. Right. I knew I liked it. You know, I had every certification under the sun, USA track and field, USA triathlon, USA cycling, uh, uh, NASM, you kind of name it. I had all those things, but I did not know how to coach. And just very fortunately, I had very good coaching mentors and good coaching framework that were very good at telling me everything I was, the few things I was doing correctly and all of the things that I was doing incorrectly. And through that kind of like constant reinforcement, you know, for 10 years or so, I feel like I became a fairly competent coach, but it wasn't because of, you know, going out and getting this education or kind of like doing that. Or yes, I did a lot of self-study and things like that. It was really just the group of people that I was, that I just happened to, to, to kind of be around. And then when I started managing other coaches, I got a promotional opportunity and, and kind of was given reign over the entire coaching department. As Dirk, you mentioned, hiring coaches, firing coaches, mentoring them. Hiring, firing is way different than mentoring, by the way. Hiring coaches, firing coaches, mentoring them, looking for the right talent that's out there and things like that. I then had to learn how to become a manager. And once again, I just happened to have very good people to lean on and namely JT Kearney and Chris Carmichael, who were very influential and very good at managing coaches and managing people and being that arena and showing me a little bit of the uh, uh, kind of the blueprint for how to how to kind of orient and, and, and act within that arena and be, and, and be effective in, in, in it. And then I became the vice president of operations where I had kind of purvey over an, over an entire coaching business. And we were a big coaching business at the time. We still are a big coaching business. And that both has to do with the development of new markets, as you mentioned, Dirk, and then also uh, kind of the umbrella underneath the current operations. And once again, I just happened to have somebody who showed me the way and that was John Frothingham and people who are in the industry will instantly recognize that name. People who are not in the industry, he is the former chief operating officer of USADA. So he worked with me for a long period of time. I was his uh, kind of direct report. We booted up, you know, regional locations and satellite offices and came up with, uh, uh, you know, coaching quality assurance program and all of these different things I kind of did underneath, un- underneath his guidance. But really the, the, the thread that, that kind of follows all of those different inflection points is I had people kind of show me the way that were extremely successful in, in actually doing that. And I can't take a lick of credit for that environment. I will take a look credit for listening to them and taking that advice and kind of absorbing it all and then coming up with all of the different tentacles that can that, that can come out of all of that different advice. But but I'm just very fortunate that I've had people there uh, kind of along the way to show me the way. And that's something that I've tried to always pass forward with our coaching department and even with people like this podcast, right? People have kind of come up to me and, and kind of asked more on the business of coaching is I realize that I'm kind of in the position that I am not solely as a byproduct of what I've been able to do, but the influence that other people have had on me. And if I can pass or if I can pay that forward a little bit, I, I can kind of re, re, kind of re, repay that debt 
So th- those have been my gaps. And it's been kind of in sequence of that. First, I needed to learn how to coach. And then I le- need to learn how to manage coaches. And then I needed to learn how to operate a business. And then you fast forward a few years later, and I, I, I became an independent contractor and started up my own, not my own coaching business, but my own business that has coaching as a, as a product of it. That's really an, an amalgamation of all of those different experiences, being a coach, managing a coach, managing a, a, a coaching business and all the different services that can fall underneath that coaching business. I don't think I would have had the confidence or the, certainly the wherewithal to take that leap and become you know, sole proprietor and an independent contractor as I, as I am right now without having that, you know, 15 or 18 years of experience within all wearing all of those different hats and kind of doing them with the supervision that, uh, that I had. Can you go more into that independent contractor relationship with CTS? Are you exclusive to CTS running a division? They pay you a flat rate. You take any profit above that. Like how does this this work? Yeah. So I, I function as an independent contractor and I take, uh, uh, in terms of the individual coaching that I do, uh, I take a cut of that CTS takes a cut of that. And then I also get a cut of the whole part of the, the of the running part of the division. So for the people that are unfamiliar, CTS has a footprint in the, in the cycling world. CTS has a small, small footprint in the triathlon world and, and, and a relatively robust footprint in the ultra running space as well. Anything that falls underneath the ultra running space, I, I take a small, uh, a small commission from, and then I, it, I act as a, both a figurehead and primary mentor of the coaches that are underneath that ultra running umbrella. I don't do any of the hiring and firing and direct management anymore. I did that for many, many years. Um, but when I became an independent contractor, I agreed to continue to have a footprint in the mentorship side of things. Cause here's the weird deal. Like, even though like CTS is like a bigger company within the ultra running sphere, it's still my face. And I very much realize that, uh, just because of the presence that I've built up. If one of our coaches does a great job, I, I might take a little bit of credit for that, or I might get a little bit of credit for that. If they screw up, I screwed up and that comes back on me and my reputation. And I'm very cognizant of that. And I want to maintain and continue to have some sort of influence within our, uh, kind of within our, within our coaching department. And so I've orchestrated my independent contract relationship with CTS to, to, to very much, to very much reflect that all of the other things that, that we'll, that we might get into, uh, later in this podcast that are kind of a part of my business. So the book is probably going to be the most, uh, uh, prevalent of one, or even this podcast, right. As part of my business, uh, those are things that I do independently. Those are part of those can kind of exist in their own silo. Nobody else has kind of tentacles on them or anything like that. I don't have investors or partners in any of those, uh, in any of those pieces, but certainly the, the, the individual coaching side of things, my one-on-one coaching is, is all channeled through, uh, uh, through CTS where we have a very typical independent contractor agreement where I take a piece and then they take a piece. Okay. So you're an LLC. What are you? S corp. S corp. Yeah. I was initially an LLC, but I switched to an S corp about 12 months ago. Okay. And, and Heather, I think Jeff, you already mentioned S corp. Is that correct? Yeah. I'm LLC file as an S corp basically, you know, like you're, I'm licensed as an LLC, but file as an S corp. I've had different designations over the years. My graphic design business was a full S corp. Yeah. We're, we're also an S corp. Okay. And any investors or 
you own 100 percent how does that work for you uh heather and jeff so um for me personally my husband and i are we own the business together so we're the you know two um under the escort similar to what jason was mentioning i do have my website separately which it is still in the running sphere and you know that is a huge part of how we market our business and how how we attract business essentially but that is completely separate from our coaching business we're organized as uh my wife and i uh share the business we have for ever since the beginning cuz she comes from a, a marketing writing research and uh and like uh communications background so she's always been you know um kind of an, taken on like kind of an administrative assistant kind of role, um, in our business. So I'm, I'm, uh, but I'm the primary. So, yeah, and it's all owned by us, you know, it's all grassroots bootstrapped, no investors. By the way, what is CTS? Do you happen to know Jason? Uh, it's a C corp. Okay. And they have a, they have investors and a board of directors and kind of a more more of a prototypical small business uh corporate governance once again i had to manage this so i know all about it <laughs> more of a prototypical small business corporate government go- governance that has received multiple rounds of funding okay cool um how about uh total business revenue getting into the the meat and potatoes of the conversation uh heather do you want to start out with like you know, and, and maybe how, you know, total revenue, but then how do you pay yourself out of that? Yeah, good question. Um, okay, so our total revenue, business revenue for last year was our ballpark figure about 97000 We pay ourselves as if we're employees. So, you know, the money goes into the business account, we get our paychecks, and as do our other coaches as well. They get paid based upon how many clients were each coaching. The same for my husband and I. You know, at the end of the day, once all the business bills are paid, that's whatever's left over still belongs to us. So <laughs> so um we will occasionally, you know, take from that as well, but but just the straightforward answer is that we do pay ourselves as we pay our other coaches based on the number of clients we're working with at that any given time. Yeah. Awesome. And Jeff? So I I thought it would be kind of cool to see a four-year average. So I gave a four I, I, I figured yeah. up, I figured Olympic cycle. I, I love it. Well, I've been growing, <laughs> I've been growing and, and I, oh, I'll dig it. I dig yeah. it. I and dig I, it. and I also wanted, I saw, I thought it would be appropriate to kind of talk about each of those kind of, because this year I'm going to make less overall than I did last year. Yeah. Cause last year was like that peak of like, oh my gosh, this business, I got to hire coaches, you know? So I'm in the early, early stage. This year was the first year to 2023. I hired coaches. And I brought coaches on. So I have three coaches uh, under me now as assistant coaches that are taking on athletes and I'm full and I've been full for like three years, but, but really like in little windows. So sometimes I would say I'm not taking anybody. And sometimes I'd be like taking people right around the beginning of the year when there's, you know, all the lotteries are happening and people have taken a break. So, you know, where you have kind of that ebb and flow of, of, of an athlete roster. So um, my four year average is $150,000. Uh, last year was $182,000, but it was a crazy year. And I was super hectic last year. And it was one of those, like it happened before I was ready for it. You know, it's one of those small business issues where you're like, Oh my God, 
you know, you get all these clients like after the lottery and I didn't have a sign up on my website that said, I'm not taking athletes. And I got this huge influx, you know, I got ultra runner. I've got in the top 10 ultra runner of the year again, over 50, one of the first guys to do it. So I don't know whether that was it, but it was right around that time. And all of a sudden I just got slammed and it was like, oh my gosh, how am I going to handle this? You know? So I basically had to cut back on training, had to cut back, you know, on like family time. Um, and yeah. so I, and, and I had to like kind of, kind of tread water for a year to get, go, okay, I got to get this going. I've been talking about it for three years of bringing on coaches. I've got to like, I actually got to execute on this. So I kind of waited till the business was like, you know, bulging at the seams to go, oh crap. So, so what I've done is this year I'm making less, I'm investing more in the company and I'm investing in my assistant coaches. So, so now my income's gone down this year as far as like the overall revenue of the business because of that. Um, because they're, they're at a less, their, their monthly is less than mine. So I'm not going to make as much on paper this year. Right. But I do mm-hmm. the same as Heather. Um, I do payroll. I pay myself a salary, a set salary. Um, I take a salary of 40,000 a year. Um, plus I take a monthly owner draw and I pay my wife $10,000 a year, um, for the admin stuff and social mm-hmm. media and everything else. She helps with all that kind of stuff. So, um, that's kind of general, um, of what, what I've been dealing with. Um, so that kind of gives you guys a, a good feel. Yeah. Cool, man. Y'all mixing in your spouses with your business. Is, uh, <laughs> I applaud that. That's <laughs> dangerous. Uh, those are dangerous waters to tread in. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what, man, I've been married 26 years. I've been with her for 30 oh, years. We've been together since good we were 18 and 21. So if we can't get along, we got some problems. So, um, and she's opposite personality me. So she's a great, like, she's not an endurance athlete, right? But she comes from an athletic background. So for her, and she comes from this communication background. So she's my great sounding board and, and helps with writing and like that kind of stuff and messaging. So, you know, from the marketing side. Yeah. Jason, uh, size, revenue, uh, and any staff. Yeah. Um, so I, I, let me start with the big picture, uh, side first. So I'll carve out CTS ultra running, right. Which is the window that I kind of currently compare through right now. So that's about $1.2 million, $1.1 million in annual revenue, uh, about 380 current, uh, athletes underneath it. Um, and that is coaching subscription revenue. Um, we have a small footprint in like camps and physiological testing and things like that. But most people are going to identify with the one-on-one coaching. So that's representative of, of, of that number. And then when you back it out to just my, my, just my business, which consists of one-on-one individual coaching, coaching commission that I get from CTS, uh, some of the USCA products, uh, that, uh, that I'm involved in the book, uh, my research newsletter, research uh, essentials for ultra running, and then some ad hoc uh, consulting things like, like that, that I get, uh, every so often that's 330 K annual in revenue every single year. Uh, like Jeff and like, uh, Heather that's revenue, not net income. Cause yeah, I obviously have exactly. expenses and things Don't like get that. that let's, let's make that, let's, yeah, let's, let's, let's <laughs> I wanted to clarify that before people start, I don't know, taking it out of context or whatever. Um, but like, uh, like Heather and like Jeff, uh, I just take a, I take a salary plus a uh, owner draw. Uh, very, very simple kind of setup that I, uh, that, that I set up with my account that amounts to, uh, like 15 K a month between those two. And are you, you're leaving some back in the business for future investment 
when, when you find out. Yeah, I have, I, I, so I don't have personal coaching contractors underneath me. Those are underneath CTS. I do have contractors that fulfill various parts of the business. So I have accounting and billing and things like that. I get that, I get mm-hmm. that, that done externally. I have people help me with my social media. I get that done externally. The podcast as a post-production editor. I get that done uh, externally. I pay uh, people for technical consulting uh, uh, for the research essentials for ultra running newsletter. So that has a, a cost associated with it. And then when I produce the book, I, I own the book, I own the rights to the book. And so I obviously have to pay, you know, technical editors and copy editors and stylists and for the actual physical production of the book and things like that. So there are expenses that, that, that go into that. I also invest a lot in travel. I travel out to a lot of races, much to the chagrin right. of my accountant. I spend about four, between four and five grand a month just in uh, travel expenses going out to races. It's been a way that I've been able to simultaneously market myself and become a, uh, uh, become a better coach uh, through it, um, as well as uh, just deliver a, a, a high quality service to the athletes, kind of help them almost a, from an ergogenic standpoint, being out at races and things like that. So I do invest a, a lot kind of back into it, mainly through the, the, the travel budget that I've kind of created for myself over the years. Hmm. Any other investments like Heather or Jeff, you know, Jason mentioned travel, uh, any kind of areas. I mean, and Jeff, you mentioned just investing in, you know, bringing on new assistants. Um, any kind of future thoughts where you might see opportunity to invest in the business for growth? I mean, for me, like, uh, you know, I'm also a little balancing. I'm still a sponsored athlete, so I'm still getting an income for running as well. So it all filters through the business as well. So when I'm telling you those numbers, that's it reflecting those that revenue as well. So there are mm-hmm. other buckets that have nothing to do with coaching. And some and and I'm also doing other things like motivational speaking, writing, um, other stuff like that that's getting buckets and, and occasionally a, a design cons, consult or something um, that gets a little bit of income. It's not very much. I think last year was like seven grand or something worth of income. Um, it wasn't very much, but so I'm still doing that kind of stuff. And, and then I'm also um, uh, investing back in the business, especially this year, I'm re- re- doing a full new uh, website platform, um, leveraging some of my contacts in the tech industry that I've worked with for 20 plus years to build me a custom platform for my website instead of using something like Squarespace or some generic. Um, I wanted, I wanted specific onboarding and like, I wanted the experience to be really good. And I had some ideas for some technology behind the scenes, some heavier lifting technology, some entrepreneurial ideas that I wanted to, um, you know, have as like, say a phase two, phase three business plan down the road. Um, you know, cause I write out my five year and my, all that kind of stuff that you do as an entrepreneur and like, where do you want to be in five? Where do you want to be in 10? I kind of go through that process myself. Um, so I have some kind of planning ahead and I can start thinking about, well, I need to implement one of these things. And so that's one of the things I'm, yeah. I'm really been spending a ton of time and money on this year, um, is investing back in the business for that technology and the, and the website, which could become an app down the road. And it's going to do a bunch of heavy lifting on onboarding and automating onboarding more. Um, so I don't have to do as much manual stuff on the onboarding side of things when new athletes come on. Cause now I have assistants and we have a whole, we're trying to normalize our onboarding process um, and, and so forth. And, and then the yeah. social aspect. So like a social app and all that kind of stuff that we've been working on. Mm. So um, 
so yeah, I'm really investing back in the business, especially this year, especially after revenue was good last year and I was overwhelmed. And I took this year when I brought the insistence on, I let my roster get a lot smaller and which, you know, Jason and I've talked about this over the years, like what, what's the ideal number. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, um, I, I, I right now have in the mid thirties is about what I carry as far as coaching load on my own personal roster. And then I'm mentoring my, my, my coach, my coaches, and I'm investing back in my coaches with time right now with just mentorship, um, and that kind of stuff. So, um, I think Mm -hmm. that answers the question, right? Yeah. Heather, any areas you'd like to see uh, investing within your business or that you currently are investing in? For Yeah. Um, so investing, um, continuing education is a huge one. That's I think that should be on every coach's um, yeah. investment list is, is investing in continuing education, whether it's going to conferences like the ultra running coach conference we just had, um, you know, adding new credentials or just investing in um, – paying for subscriptions for journal articles and things like that. So you're staying on top of it. So that's, that's a big thing we spend a lot of money on personally. And we encourage our coaches to do as well. Um, and then like Jeff said, time, time, time is money. And we spend a lot of time, you know, brainstorming, how can we help grow our coaches? How can we mentor them? How can we market ourselves, whether it's going to, um, to races to, you know, crew for our clients, um, or just volunteering or helping out. We do, we also invest a good chunk of money every year to local races um, as sponsors. Uh, I guess that would be kind of considered marketing as well, but we just feel it's important for our business to support the local grassroots running community. um, And, you know, in turn that helps us as well. So um, yeah, that's, I would say as far as investments, that's that continuing education is our big one. Um, Something that hasn't been mentioned yet that we spend a ton of money on every year is our coaching platform. So we actually use Final Surge. I apologize, not Training Peaks. Training Peaks is awesome. <laughs> it's good but to have competition. Yeah, yeah. We we started <laughs> Makes there. Makes everybody and, better. Right? <laughs> We've just invested so much time building our personal and coaching library there. That, that That's where we are right now. Yeah. Uh, but that's that's a big business expense that I think a lot of new coaches don't consider. Um, even if it's just you and you don't have other coaches to pay that expense for as well. Um, you know, you need something more than just a Google spreadsheet and, and it does add up, um, your internet costs, your phone costs, all these things. Um, so yeah, it's, I would say the technical side of, of the business, you know, um, all of the equipment that you use, it, it adds up. So that would be our biggest expense. Do you pay? Sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. And you you mentioned on, ongoing education uh, for assistance. Do you pay any of that on their behalf? Not currently, but that's something that we've we've definitely explored um, that we want to do. That's that's a meeting we've been meaning to have with our CPA. She's a little she's a little tough on us and what we get to spend money on. <laughs> <laughs> we we, we do that, by the way, Heather. We do that at CTS. We have a small. It doesn't cover everything, but we kind of have to fight tooth and nail provide our our coaches you can we have 50 coaches underneath our whole umbrella mm-hmm. and out of those 50 15 are ultra running specific we carve out a little bit a little bit of budget so that they can use that in a almost kind of an ad hoc way and it's i've always felt it's good money spent that's good to hear i'm gonna i'm gonna cite you then when i'm when i'm yeah. arguing <laughs> with <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally jeff what, what, I, well i just wanted to add three things um you know um continuing ed- education i think is really important um I've had struggle. I've struggled with that personally. I have to do my own kind of just here. You know, I do a lot of podcast. Like I listen to probably six to ten hours worth of health 
longevity, nutrition, and ultra running podcasts, which is mainly the Coopcast. Um, so just because it's so good, dude, you have the best subjects. I have to say, like it is great. <laughs> Thanks, man. I appreciate. That. I really, appreciate I really, that. I mean, it's great. So. I, I, you know, and, and I, and I, I share those with my coaches. If I come across a really good one on strength training, or if I come across a good one on nutrition, or I come across a good one on ultra running, you know, you know, the protein one and the ketone one, you know, from the coop cast gets shared a lot. Um, but, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, just like, if that's one is using like just normal everyday week, a little two or three hours to research during the week as well. I set aside, but, but also, you know, I have, I have a, a, like, Hey, I need to get to this at some point list as well. And one of them is the, um, is one of them is, is the, uh, USCA, uh, ultra running certification. I just think that's great that you guys are, dri- that Coop, you guys are driving that. I think that's something we need in the industry. Um, I feel kind of sheepishly, uh, embarrassed that I haven't taken it yet. Um, but part of it is for me personally, I'm still like running my butt off, you know, and, um, you know, I ran eight ultras this year and I'm, I'm always training my rear off. So like that takes up a lot of time that I could be doing some of this stuff, but I just always like, ah, I'm going to go run, um, and listen to a podcast. So, um, so I can kill two birds with one stone, so to speak. Um, and the other one, um, you know, or two other ones co- covering education for my, my coaches. It's funny, this, just this idea of this podcast, when Coop approached me, I was like, it made me start my, you know, my brain starts going like, how can I improve my business? How can I do this? How can I do that? And that was one of the things that came out of that, that kind of uh, thought process was like, I need to cover like a percentage of like certifications. I'd like to have every one of my athletes have the USCA certification, ultra running certification. I've got one that has it, but another one's got a ton of other certifications as a PT and other things. And, and one, another one has all the, um, all the normal, what's the NAA, sorry, in the NASA. NSCA. Yeah. NSCA, yep. And so, so I, I, I would really like to all of them to have that. And I was thinking, well, maybe I could just, I'll reinvest and give them like, you know, 200 pay half or something, you know, for them to go get that certification. So, you know, that was something that came out of the brainstorm of just this, the idea of this podcast. And then the other for me is uh, I do very similar to what another investment piece in mine is my marketing kind of strategy is to help my athletes on the ground with whether it's crewing or pacing or just going like I just out of my own, you know, out of the, out of my own pocket, you know, the business, um, we went to Moab 240. I had three athletes in it and I had a buddy running it who won it, Jesse Haynes. So like uh, we went there and we helped, we, we paced, I paced, I crewed, I got hardly any sleep, but you come out of that with that, that hands-on experience like that, you come out of, like Jason was saying earlier, you come out of that with like, I mean, I had, I probably had 20 bullet points from that week, you know, of like new things I want to implement in like coaching 200s, for example. So like you get so much education from just being boots on the ground. So, and especially in the role of support. Because, you know, as an athlete, yeah. I'm always pulling from other people to support me. But as a coach, you want to be on that other side of the thing. So you see like, okay, what's this guy who's running's wife dealing with, you know, like she's getting no sleep, his organization and tech, you know, you know, his, 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 uh, organization might be poor a- a- on little things. And then that shows that that's a reflection on me as a coach going, wow, I should have emphasized that, 
You know, I, I know I told him that, but I should have emphasized that's really important, you know? And so then that helps me be a better coach. So, yeah, every, every, every single minute and every single dollar that I've ever spent going to races in some capacity for an athlete and whether that's just to give them a hug at the finish line or to crew them, right? That whole spectrum that has come back and paid its weight in gold five or tenfold. Amen, dude. I like, 100% I, agree. I, I've never, I've, I've never, and my time is limited just like everybody else's. And, you know, my capital is limited just like everybody else's. I have never regretted one single minute or one single dime that I've ever spent in those endeavors just for all of the reasons that you guys just mentioned. Well, I think what, I think what's interesting is I don't know whether that's where this podcast came from, but this idea, but you and I were talking, yeah. waiting for our <laughs> yeah, two yeah, of our athletes yeah. were close together and we were waiting at the finish line at hard rock this yeah. year. And we were exactly. talking about coaching in the dark. Yeah. I don't know what time yeah, it was, the, the middle of the night. Two in the morning. Yeah, exactly. But I, I had run too. So I was like on like yeah. fumes, but I was out there to yeah. see my athlete finish. And, and Coop and I happened to be standing next to each other and we strike, stroke up a conversation like we normally do. And we started talking about the business of coaching and um, the frustrations that we've had. And um, so I'm glad we're talking about this. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a good point. You, you go to you go to the race not to only support the athlete, but you do meet other coaches, and yeah. you really can really open up when you're in person with another coach over. Yeah, you know, hopefully over a beer, not just two in the morning, right? Trying to stay warm, but anyways, <laughs> yeah, it's great connecting, you know, with with other like minded folks and sharing your pains, right? And how you go about uh, building the business. Um, I don't know the vibe. Stay- the vibe of the rock might be yeah, yeah or, rock. we're standing right next rock. to the rock man so like the like aura the of the rock. rock yeah exactly yeah, yeah it's the truth and rock. it's actually what's an interesting like t- side note that's how coop and i met is hard rock so yeah, that's right 2007 mm, right. we got introduced by yeah, garrett right. robbins and he that's paced right. me for a section at my first hard rock man that's that, right. that, that's right. I, I learned a lot long, on that first hard rock ago. yeah it was a long yeah, me, time ago. me too yeah. <laughs> um, staying on the topic of uh, assistance, how about recruiting? You know, is it, you know, it, that can, I imagine that's got to be tough. Like it's so much trust mm. that, you, that you have to have in them that they're going to represent your brand. And as Coop said, they mess up, it's on you. Um, how do we go about recruiting, finding good quality assistant coaches, and then onboarding them? What does that process look like within your three businesses? Um. So when we started, I always said, I will never, I I don't want assistant coaches because this is my baby and it's my reputation. I don't, I don't trust anybody. Um, after I want to say maybe three years in one of our very close friends, um, got his USCA certification and came to us and said, I, I, I want to coach like, let, you know, can, can I coach for you? And we really thought about it and we're like, okay, well we trust him. We'll let you in. Um, and it was a great experience for us. And so fast forward another two years when we got to the point where we just could not, we were turning away clients left and right because, you know, we were full and it, it wasn't responsible to, to have, you know, a, a huge roster. Um, we had to sit down and really have that conversation. Are we going to bring on more coaches? And so um, it, it's a hard thing to do. And I, I tell people this all the time, like, like Jason mentioned, you have, it's a reflection of you. So you really have to think hard about it. But, um, what we do is 
immediately we go to USCA. That's our um, where we like to kind of pull coaches from because we know if they've gone through that ultra running coach certification, they we at least know they've got that level of understanding of of um, the science behind coaching and and um, everything taught in that course. So um, that's that's where we recruit from uh, to answer that question. But I will tell you, it's not something we actively do all the time. We're not personally looking to continue growing our business into this massive conglomerate. We're kind of like where we're comfortable right now. So we're never really actively coaching, um, but we do network all the time with other coaches, you know, to kind of keep people, I don't want to say in my back pocket, but, you know, to have these relationships with other coaches that you trust and, and maybe agree with their coaching philosophies and methodologies. And so if that time ever does come that we need to bring on more coaches, um, you know, we'd probably pull from these people. And I want to continue with you, Heather. Uh, What does that onboarding look like in terms of compensation split? Do they earn Mm -hmm. more and more percentages? Are they full-time now or would you consider them part-time? We have everything. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We have um, the majority of our coaches do have full-time jobs or part-time jobs outside of coaching. So it's not something that they intend to do full-time. And so... For those coaches, we do a 70-30 split. They get, you know, 70%. We take 30 unless they bring clients to our coaching umbrella themselves, um, Mm -hmm. in which case we do 95-5. We just take Mm -hmm. a tiny cut to, you know, cover our, um, the cost of paying for final surge (laughs) and, and other things. But, um, yeah, and that's because quite honestly, a lot of people who come to work under our umbrella, they don't want to market. They, they don't want to go get their own clients because if they did, they'd have their own business. They do all of this. So, you know, that's, um, we, we definitely encourage them to bring in their own, but usually it's, it's 70, 30. Um, and as far as onboarding goes, it kind of depends on their experience. We've had coaches who have come to us, um, already coaching. They, they've been doing it for years. They just didn't want to, um, do it on their own. They wanted to work for someone else, in which case it's, you know, we, we meet with them a few times. We talk about our coaching philosophy, the things we expect from them and, you know, what they can expect from us, um, and kind of let them get to it. And on the other hand, we have mentored brand new coaches who have said, you know, I really want to do this. I've, I've coached for fun, like some friends for free. Um, I'm not sure what to do. It, those coaches, their onboarding process is a little different. We'll often encourage them to find a friend that they don't mind coaching for free just for like a week or two, just so they can practice, you know, get some practice with the platforms and how everything works. Um, and we'll go from there. And I'm actually super stoked to say that every time we've done that, those practice clients have always come on as paid clients almost immediately. So um, it's worked pretty well for us. All right. Jeff? I, uh, uh, recruiting. Where do you look for recruiting? So, How does that find? Well, being a branding person, um, I see myself <laughs> as a specific niche brand in ultra running. Um, you know, I'm very like as far as what I offer. You know, I'm very like a Coop knows this. I'm very opinionated about nutrition and and my angle of nutrition, ancestral yeah. nutrition, and so and strength training mobility and all the other things that go into longevity. And so mm-hmm. that's another piece since I'm 52 and still competing longevity is still part of my brand story. Um, that, that, you know, is not only me as an athlete, but as, as a coaching brand. And so right. that was the biggest struggle probably, you know, we talked about like, I've been thinking about bringing a coaches on for three years, but people, 
my coaching clients seek me out and my philosophy. And so I, I was like, how do I, you know, how do I, like for years, the question was, how do I meet that need that people are coming for my philosophy specifically, right? But, th- right. but I'm full. So how do I meet that need? Well, what it finally ended up, it just organically kind of happened with a couple of my athletes that I've been coaching for like five years. One's a, co- a current coach already. He's got all the certifications and, and the USCA stuff. And, and, um, and so he was a natural person we'd been talking. He'd been asking me coaching, even on our coaching calls for his training, he was asking me coaching questions for years. And we would always have like a percentage of our call of our coaching call would be dedicated to coaching specifically. So he was a natural, he was my first coach. Um, and I brought him on and, and we, we agree on all things. And so that drove who I recruit. So from that point forward, I was like, who do I, it's gotta be someone who either I've mentored already and I've spent a ton of time speaking into their life and we agree on life philosophy in general. And so that's where I found, um, Trish, my, my, uh, my female coach, she's great. Um, we all, we agree on all that stuff. So everyone I brought on, I've coached two of them. I've coached for almost five years and another one I've coached for two years. And then, um, he, and he's local the two year and we meet for coffee every two weeks. Um, so we, I'm, I'm speaking into them, still doing, I'm doing coaching calls with them. Um, and, and talking to them about coaching and mentoring and they kind of have an, I have an open door policy as far as like, you know, get hold of me anytime you have a question. Um, so that's kind of where mine's organically kind of grassroots grown by people in my inner circle already that I trust. Mm-hmm. And that's, the, and, and I've, and after doing that, I've decided that's the only way I'm going to do it. So if I'm going to grow, mm-hmm. it's going to, you got to be in my inner circle before you're going to be assistant coach for me. I'm not just going to hire anybody. So, yeah. and, and that's, that was part of that process I was talking about with a business coach I worked with before I, I expanded this year. Last year, I worked with a business coach in planning for this season of like launching the assistant coaches. I, that was part of that process. And that's where I defined like, you know what? I really need to stick to my brand and who I am and my philosophy. And then every coach I hire is under that umbrella philosophy. And so, you know, if you come to my coaching business, you're going to get my coaching philosophy, even if you're hired even if you're working with one of my assistant coaches. What about uh, compensation? Do they earn outs? Uh, Se- 70-30 split. Um, so that's that's across the board, 70-30 split. I have a little different organization with my group, my group coaching offering um, because I'm involved more in that one because I run group video calls every two weeks for the group. Um, but I have an assistant that's writing their plans so we we do a 50-50 split right now because I'm handling all the onboarding and I'm handling like some of the communications in the social app that we use and and that kind of stuff so I'm I'm spending time more time than I am with my individual custom coaches that are taking on their own clients so um so that's a different split now if he gets to the point where you know he takes it grows enough and he takes on more responsibility then we can renegotiate like a 70-30 split. And that's my vision for him is to be a 70-30 mm-hmm. split eventually because yep. he's handling onboarding, but right now he's not. So it's mm-hmm. since I'm spending more time, I'm getting more of the cut, but that's kind of how it works. All right. Coop, how's it go? Uh, this is how's it? Ha- 
this is going to be such a cool compare and contrast. So, <laughs> um, so on the, on the recruitment side, I've always said, if I'm a domain expert in anything, it's recruiting and training coaches. I mean, I, I spent, a, I spent over a decade of my career, not exclusively doing that, but that was a really big part of it. We'd hire 10 to 15 coaches every single year, every year during that 10, 10 to whatever year process I've hired and mentored and screened and trained, hired and fired over a hundred coaches during, during that tenure. And a lot of the themes that Jeff mentioned, maybe not so much like the personalization side of things. A lot of those, a lot of those themes that Jeff mentioned really permeate the way really permeate through the way that I think about hiring and hiring, screening, developing and ongoing, uh, ongoingly training coaches except I had to do it at scale. I had to kind of institutionalize it, so to speak. I couldn't just one off things. I had to do it two to three times a year and have 60 applications in and whittle those 60 applications down to 10 people that we would actually interview and whittle down those 10 people that we actually interview into two or three people that we actually hired and then do the balancing of everything as well. I remember a long, a long time ago, Chris put me in charge of, of, evening out our female to male split within our coaching department, which as you guys realize, it's a heavily male dominated industry. And we followed suit with that where 80% of our coaches were males at, at, at one point. And he put me in charge of simply going out and hiring more female coaches. And that was a huge effort. It was a lot of literally kind of like hand to hand combat and recruiting and stuff like that. I couldn't institutionalize that part. I just had to spend more time mm-hmm. finding, finding female coaches. So it's, so anyway, my point with that is, is I have this, this, both this appreciation for what Jeff and Heather are trying to do, but then also appreciation for how we tried to essentially scale it up. And so we have a two phase process. So the initial phase is who gets into the, who gets into the pool, right? So we, we recruit everywhere. We'll do a public recruiting piece. We'll post it on all the job boards and the industry specific things and things like that. But then we'll also network. We'll network with our uh, uh, with our different service providers. We'll network with our partners. I'll network with everybody that I've pull, pulled onto the podcast. You know, including the people who have actually been on the podcast. Some of them have actually uh, become coaches for us uh, more recently. But it really is an all of the above approach. We try to kind of scour the earth, so to speak, for uh, uh, for good coaches. And then based on that, in every hiring round, we'll get you know between forty and seventy resumes or something like that, and we've got to whittle them down to ten. The way we whittle it down to 10 is, cost, is across three, three basic points. First one is they have to have a bachelor's level understanding of exercise science. That's the minimum. Like people come in with master's degrees and PhD, PhDs and things like that. But at minimum, we're not set up to be an exercise science university. We just can't do it. And so they have to understand that at the bare, bare minimum just to kind of, kind of get an interview. The second piece of that, uh, the second piece of this is they have to be a good communicator. So we'll look at their written communication. We might do a really quick phone interview just to see if they have, you know, some, some type of interpersonal skills. We might even look out to their references really quickly just to check on that interpersonal skill uh, piece of it. But they have to have reasonable interpersonal skills. We're all in the people business here as coaches. That's the second piece. And the third piece is they have to have interest in the sport that they were coaching. So you got to remember I was hiring for cycling coaches, triathlon coaches, and running and ultra marathon coaches kind of all at the same, all at the same time. And that personal interest in the sport, having, you know, people that personally do it, that like it, that are kind of in the scene, so to speak, especially in a niche sport like ultra running is extremely important. You cannot, and I learned this the hard way. 
where I tried to bring in our triathlon coaches and make them ultra marathon coaches. And although they would be fantastic, fantastic coaches, they didn't have the initial spot of credibility because they weren't an ultra runner. So from the consumer side of things, it was a non-starter. From my side of things, I would have complete confidence in them. And I'll, I'll tell the story really briefly to kind of illustrate this point. Uh, many years ago, when I first started taking on a lot of the elite ultra runners in my in my roster filled up very quickly, I had a few elite ultra runners uh, contact me about uh, for coaching. And I'm like, listen, I can't I can't coach you, but I have the perfect coach for you. His name is Nick White, who coached Craig Alexander to not one, but two Ironman World Championships, two, two of them. That is not easy. And it, and you could say that that is a greater athletic accomplishment than anything that exists in ultra running because of the competitiveness of that sport with all due respect to the people who are there in the sport. Not only was it a no, it was a hard no and non-starter across several elite athletes. And so it, 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 it demonstrated to me that I needed this third piece as well. They, they had to have some sort of personal connection and personal interest uh, into the sport. So that's initially how we would create our like big pool to the smaller pool. Once we get down to the smaller pool, we would have a, a much more intimate screening process, which we dubbed the coaching college, which is really just false advertising. It was really just a series of intimate like case studies that we would put these coaches through to see a little bit of how they would kind of program in a realistic perspective, like also taking into the context of their new and all this other, other kind of stuff but also see more how they reacted to the mentorship because we do have a very, uh, we do have a very involved coach mentorship, uh, process that is, it, it is, it, it, let's just put it, uh, let's just put it bluntly. It's not easy. Um, it, it's definitely driven from a lot of the influence of the training center where it's very high performance oriented and, you know, we don't coddle people a lot. They better get their shit together and have their shit together and, you know, know their shit and all, all, all the things that are related to that. And there's only a certain, from a cultural perspective, we want to make sure that we're hiring the right people. And so we put them in this kind of like pressure cooker coaching college type of environment where they're producing real case scenarios and getting scrutinized by our kind of master mentor coaches at the same intensity that they would get scrutinized once they are actually hired. And the people who survive that process, essentially, <laughs> who can kind of like, can, they can kind of like handle the mentorship, essentially, because we have very high standards. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to beat around the bush around that. The people who can kind of survive that scrutiny are the people who ultimately kind of make it through those, uh, the, those series of filters. But it's definitely that this two-step process where we initially have to whittle it down to the people who have some, have a, just an initial core competency set across education, communication, and involvement in the sport. And then we try to fit them for culture more, uh, more than anything else on this second step. What about uh, compensation-wise for those who are coaches? Yeah, our, our compensation model is actually a lot different than uh, both Heather's and Jeff, and it favors, the, it favors the company more. So we have a little bit more of a convoluted model that I'm going to try to kind of, kind of simplify. Um, so the, the reason that it's convoluted is kind of across convoluted is kind of overplaying how, uh, how complicated it is. It's really not that complicated. There's kind of two flavors of splits. First flavor is does the coach recruit the athlete or does CTS recruit the athlete? So we have a big coaching pipeline that comes in about anywhere between 50 and 70 athletes a month across all sports. Coming in this pipeline where we have a centralized 
athlete services team that kind of pairs up the incoming athletes with the, uh, with, with the correct coaches. So a lot of the onboarding that uh, Jeff mentioned earlier is kind of institutionalized from, uh, from the top down. So one flavor of our splits is, is does that wholly exist through CTS? So the coach essentially receives the athlete, having that athlete paired with them through some series of this is the right athlete for Jeff or for Dirk or for, or, or for Heather. The other side of that split is if the coach goes out and recruits that, uh, recruits that athlete, which obviously the coach, uh, receives a, a little bit more of a, uh, more of a favorable compensation. So if it comes through through, and then we have bonus, a bonus model based on retention, essentially. So an athlete goes through a certain kind of length of their contract. They get, uh, the coach gets kicked back a certain percentage of that, of that contract value, uh, after that period of time. But once you alchemize all of those on the CTS recruited side, it works out to be about 60, 40. So the coach gets about 60%, the company gets about 40%. And then if the coach actually recruits it, it's 75, 25, which is a little bit more akin to mm-hmm. what Jeff, uh, what, what Jeff and Heather do, do. but that only kind of works out if the, if the renewal model starts to see several cycles. So if you get it, we, we, the way that we favored our compensation model is based off of a little bit more of a long-term lens versus a short-term lens. So it's much more favorable, favorable if you have an athlete that's underneath your, like your purvey for 18 months or 24 months or 36 months versus just six months, that's going to be a, it's not an unfavorable model to the coach, but it's certainly less favorable because of the, not only the initial labor that's involved, but just the split doesn't work out with the kind of with the renewal bonuses. So it's nice. So a coach could receive a once a year bonus, if you will, for previous, for clients that they've had on previous 12, 18, 36 months. Yeah, it's it's once a year, once every six months, just depending upon the kind yeah. of contract type, essentially. Yeah, it's, I haven't heard of that. That's a cool way of doing it. I like uh, that idea you ha- too. Cool idea. I, I was just going to say, yeah. I kind of agree with yeah. that. That's a cool idea to have a bonus for retention. Mm-hmm. You know, from a business perspective, yeah. you're always trying to keep, ret- you know, retention is an important piece. Yeah. That, so if you guys, you guys can steal this from me as well. It's totally Okay. <laughs> With part of our coaching quality assurance model, yep. the lin- the linchpin of this, Jeff, you and I talked about this, the linchpin of that quality assurance model is coach retention. So I can look at a coach's retention rate and kind of rack and stack. This coach is doing a great job. This mm-hmm. coach is doing a bad job. And it, yeah. it, re- it really is that easy. And when I instituted that, this was a big project that I headed up over. It might've taken me 12 months to actually figure out. And it was a it was kind of a profit sharing model that we had with our full-time employees. The gateway into that was their retention rate. Yeah. So did they meet a certain retention threshold? And if they did, those full-time employees could participate in a profit sharing program. And if they didn't, they couldn't participate in this profit sharing program. And when I did that, I got so much heat <laughs> from our staff about yeah. hey, why can't I use functional threshold power or improvement and whatever gold medals in the world championships or whatever is like inclusion in this model is like, nope, it's going to be based on retention. But like it took a, a little while to flush out. Once it actually flushed out, it ended up being, okay, now we can kind of see why, why, why you're actually using that. Yeah, yeah exactly. Business, Business 101 is retention. Business. Can, you, can you get paid? But customers? also it's the better coaches. Yeah. It's yeah. the better coaches though. The better coaches had the higher retention rates. It's yes, just that they course. wanted to do, they wanted to be, 
compensated on something that they knew better, right? And so they know coaching, they know how to improve athletes, functional threshold pace and VO2 maxes and stuff like that. Yeah. And they wanted their compensation to kind of be reflective of what they knew. It was getting past that initial knowing point that was the stumbling block. And once it all was all said and done, you could look at all of our great coaches, the ones with the world championships and the Olympic medals and kind of things like that. And they were always the ones with the highest retention rates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, awesome. Do any of you have like non-solicitation or NDA type agreements, you know, help protect against coach leaving? That was something that was, again, when we decided to bring on coaches, I struggled with um, whether or not we should do that. And ultimately we decided not to do an NDA or a non-compete because we realize that at the end of the day, people are coming to our business for us and and our coaching style and what we do, and that simply can't be replicated. I mean, you know, the coaching itself is not rocket science. We hopefully are all doing very similar things. So, what brings those clients to us? It's it's our you know um, more of our coaching philosophy and the community we build um, and and so if another coach wants to try and replicate that, I mean cool, good for them, but they're never going to be me, right? You know, they're never going to be that other person. So we decided not to do that. And um, so far it it is, it has been okay. Um, We have not had any issues um, with coaches trying to, you know, come in and take clients and then leave. Uh, We have had a coach actually very recently, a coach did decide to leave and go off on his own. And um, it was the first time we have had to face the issue. Well, what do we do? Do we, do his clients stay with us or, or do they go with him? Because we didn't have any sort of contract with that. And ultimately I felt that the coach client relationship is the most important thing. And if they have a great relationship with him as a coach, I don't want to stand in the way of that. So we told them, you know, you're welcome to stay with us. We'll assign you a new coach. Um, but we also fully respect if you have a great working relationship with that coach, we want you to continue with that coach and, and we wish you well and, and go for it. And it was, and it was a good split, you know, um, some people stayed, some people left and, um, you know, uh, more people will fill those spaces. So, so, yeah, you know, yeah. I've also yeah. heard of like a buyout clauses, you know, you can leave, yeah. if you take certain yeah. athletes with you, there's this compensation, uh, Jeff, any experience there? Uh, you know, I since I just lost it this year, I don't I don't have one right now, but I have had one drafted by my lawyer. Um, <laughs> but it hasn't been implemented. So, you know, I'm always like I'm always working and planning ahead. And that yeah. was one of the things on my list of things. But it's like for me, I'm like, I, I don't know what how what what are what I should do as as the draft, you know. So I'm still like, you know, do I is it you know, they you know, I liked, I, I actually just jot, jotted down the note buyout clause. Like, Hey, I, that's mm-hmm. a good idea. Um, yeah. you know, so I, you know, We're I'm looking look for you that. guys. I'm looking <laughs> to you guys in this podcast to help me like define that part. Cause that's, a, this is an early part of my business, right? It's just got launched at the beginning of this year. So, you know, my, right now my coaches don't have, my assistant coaches don't have enough athletes for that really to be a big deal, but, but I do need it in place. I feel like that is a, you should always cover your bases as a business owner. And if you're running the business and you're paying most of the, all the taxes and, you know, all that kind of stuff and all the expenses, you know, all the technology, all the subscriptions, all the, you know, so like you need that just should be in place. And I think it's a great idea. I just haven't, I haven't got to that point where I'm like, I'm comfortable with this one. 
with this draft. Mm-hmm. So it's still in draft mm-hmm. phase from my lawyer. And I probably saw him like V3 right now. Um, and I'm still like, I was like, well, I'll wait. Maybe I'll, something will come out of this podcast and it'll give me a better idea. So it probably um, will never feel comfortable. It'll probably no. never feel comfortable implementing it. You know, it's like the thinking of the, the worst case scenario type stuff. Um, yeah. But yeah, but Jason, you, yeah, you're right. You I've seen real in business over the years, especially like internet startups and entrepreneurial settings, it gets really, really messy. And so you kind of, it's better just to have it on paper and say, this is what we agree on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, Jeff, get your pen out. I've got it, man, right here, dude. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to take you to school on this one because very, very, either fortunately or unfortunately, I have a lot of experience. Oh, in I'm this. sure, man, with so some size business. I, I you need are. to, yeah. So let me, let me kind of clarify things. Is for, first off, I work as an independent contractor right now. And everything that I'm just about to mention, I am, I am subject to as an independent contractor for, for CTS. And I'm going to talk about it from the perspective of how, how it's currently orchestrated. Although I'm not at the helm of that. I put all of this stuff in place when I was coaching director and I was uh, vice president of operations. Although I no longer manage it now, I am now the recipient of it. So keep, keep that in mind as I, as I kind of go through that dialogue. So see, so this is not anything that I have with any of the contractors in my current business because they're not really related to coaching. I pay my social media manager. I don't have her under a non-compete clause or kind of anything like that. This is stuff that CTS has with their uh, with their coaches, which I think is the most relevant here. So we have all of the above, non-disclosures, non-compete, and non-solicitation agreements. And I think the first orientation point to kind of pick up on, on some of the theme that Dirk just mentioned is these are things that you don't want to deal with, but you should absolutely deal with them. Because if you're growing your business, you are going to get to the point where people are going to use your business to grow their business. There's just no other way around it. As much as you want to think that Jeff, you're hiring your buddies and Heather, you have a perfect screening process. And I, you know, have my little screening process that I just kind of went through. You're going to have people that either from the onset or at a certain point in your employment relationship with them, they are going to look at the situation and say, I'm going to start my own business. I'm going to use this infrastructure that already exists to grow my business up. And then I'm going to intentionally split that off. That That is just going to, if you don't have that happen to you, you're really lucky and fortunate and everybody should take business advice from you. But that is absolutely going to, absolutely going to happen. Nobody wants these things in place and they all look super nasty but you've got to have them in place that being said i think the first thing to think about is is when i've looked at this when i've looked at how to orient this within our coaching department is there are things that you have to throw the switch on when they are the most dire and i've only had out of those hundred coaches that i have that, that i've hired I've only had like two where I've really had to throw all the legal resources at them. And and so, and so I, I use that as a point of caution to say, most of the time you're using these things as points of negotiation and leverage for when you do have those employee splits that happens, you hire people, they go off and they want to play in the industry that, that, that absolutely happens. They can go off and become a, baker or a bus driver or a surgeon or kind of whatever. And then you don't have to worry about any of these things. But a lot of times they're going to kind of come back into the industry because for, for us, I hired people that want to be in the industry, right? So I also had to realize that some of those people were going to leave and I need both 
reasonable protections within the business because it's a lot to hire people and train them. I just went through all the stuff that I go through to help uh, constantly mentor our athletes and then also be fair at the end of the day. So it's only in the most extreme circumstances that we deploy those NDAs, non-competes and uh, non-solicitation pieces of of the two, the non-solicitation and the non-competes are usually the biggest kind of sticking points because as you guys mentioned earlier, none of us are really doing anything all that special. I kind of don't care if somebody knows who I'm charging and what I'm charging for and any of that other stuff. I'm obviously very transparent about that uh, as a byproduct of this podcast. But people just don't like telling them, hey, listen, you can't solicit these clients. Or hey, listen, you got to sit in the penalty box for six months or 12 months or however you draw up your your non-compete clause. Um, I will relay, though, that from experience, whenever we've had these splits, as long as everybody does what they say that they're going to do, all the parties sit down, hey, this is what we're going to do with the athletes, just like Heather mentioned earlier, right? These athletes are going to go here. These athletes are going to go there. This is the best solution for them. We're going to take an athlete first approach. As long as everybody does that, this is still small business. All that stuff just generally just kind of like works out. It's when people act nefariously where we've got to spend money on legal resources and everybody gets butt hurt over, you know, trying to enforce a non-compete or non-solicitation or whatever. So my encouragement to small business owners out there are put these in place, realize that they're fail safe switches for nefarious actors and people who were intentionally trying to poach things from you. And in most situations that is not going to happen. You're just using these either as a, as kind of a, like an initial starting point or a negotiation point for whenever you do have to like negotiate those releases. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. I, yeah. I agree. I, and that's why I have a draft, <laughs> I, you know, being an entrepreneur long enough and, and having employment contracts and contractors you're managing and everything else. You, you, at some point there's always someone who, well, thinks they're a lot of times thinks they're more arrived than they really are. And they end up, becoming that nefarious actor. And, and you, you need, that's really what that, that, that agreement's about. It's for that specific person. And sometimes you don't know who that is. Even right. if you know yeah. them really well, they may become that person. So you need it in place as a safety net. And I agree with that. And so that's why I've had it drafted, but I just haven't implemented yet. I just yeah. don't, I don't know. Is it six months? Is it 12 months? You know, like, like yeah. uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. I got to figure that out. Yeah, that's it's that stuff. So I'll, I'll offer two kind of points of commentary on that. But first off, it'll absolutely be people that you don't, you'd never can, you can never forecast people's Heck career no. tra- trajectories. No. no, I mean, you know, they, they're all, it's all nice and, you know, fuzzy and all that stuff when they first start working for you. But then after they've worked for you for three or four years, you know, we look at these things that we just talked about earlier, the 70, 30 splits and, oh man, I can make 30% more if I do this, that, or the other. And you know, that, that, that happens quite, uh, quite, uh, quite often. Um, so my encouragement is, is to get these things put in place initially. If you don't know what the right answer is, six months, 12 months, you know, buyout agreements and things like that, pick the most reasonable but run and realize that that is also going to serve as a little bit of a screening tool for you from the onset. Yeah. And I did not mention this in the hiring part of it. But when I would when I would hire coaches, when I personally would hire coaches, of which I've done many of them, I would bring this up. And I would take, I would make it a point to run them through our whole independent contract agreement, which most people would pencil whip, right? Most people get those big legal documents and they're like, I oh, just show, show me where to sign. 
I would take them through each one of the three non-disclosure, non-complete, non-compete, and non-solicitation, and then tell them what that practically means just so that they know what they're getting themselves into. And I viewed it as another part or kind of like a final part of the entire screening tool. And I only had one candidate who I actually really wanted to hire that, that, um, uh, that kind of backed out of it because of that. Now, that being said, you're also going to have different permutate, like as you hire coaches, you're going to have different permutations of this. So the common one that happens with us when we hire new coaches is they have an existing business, right? So what do they do with that? And we've kind of taken it from the standpoint of if that existing business is like our subscription-based coaching model, we don't want to cannibalize that. We don't want to do, we don't want to have a growth by acquisition business where we're looking at other coaches and we're trying to build up our profit by, by kind of siphoning off other, or to kind of bring in other coaches. We want to one their payments and we usually bake in an ex, an exception to the non-compete non-solicitation for the business that they've actually brought in. So Jeff, we want to hire you as a coach. We'd say, okay, Jeff, what are you making? You're making, you know, X, Y, Z a year. Okay. We're going to pay you X, Y, Z a year, right? We're not going to cut out. 5% or 10% or 30% or kind of whatever. And then on top of that, if there ever is a split, Jeff, you have an exclusion to the business that you brought into CTS in the first place. We've always set that up. I think that that's fair when you're yeah. thinking about doing this, Jeff, and whoever else is listening to this, thinking about this. I think that, that, that that's a fair way to actually look at it. The other permutation of this is for like strength training businesses and things that are kind of like coaching and may or may not fit into it. And whenever I've had to discern that, if it's sort of a fit, it's not a fit. So people's strength training businesses, you can have it. I don't want to touch it. People's personal training businesses, you can have it. I don't want to touch it. You have a consulting business on the side that like you talk about, you know, wearables or you give people advice on shoes or whatever it is. I don't want to touch it. That's not part of our core business. Like just, just let's like not try to like muddy the waters and things like that. Because when you're hiring these independent contractors, they're going to have their fingers in a lot of different pies naturally. And unless it's a perfect, you know, one-to-one match of your current business model, I don't want to kind of convolute the relationship with trying to like shoehorn things in that aren't part of the core business. Yeah. Cool. If you had to make sure coaches have left with a clean slate from their past coaching business. I, I don't, I don't, I mean, yeah, I mean, they are, everybody comes in with baggage. So, you know, we've had a lot of coaches that have come in from, from the training center, from high performance jobs over there. And we always find a way to kind of incorporate those, uh, those athletes. I've never said, Hey, listen, you've got to wipe out your entire business and, and, and come on board here. We always find a reasonable way to, uh, uh, to, to, to work it out. And the centerpiece of that is we want to keep the coach whole with their current income, whatever their generating from these athletes. And that's whether we have brought them in as an independent contractor or as a full-time employee, right? So you can imagine that looks different in both of those cases. We want to keep you whole there. And then we want to keep the athletes whole. So everybody has different pricing models, right? And we have a pricing model. We won't absorb those athletes into our pricing model from the onset. We're not going to either upgrade or downgrade. So can I I ask a clarifying question? Are you, so say they're bringing in on their own pricing model and they've had their own contracting business or own, own consulting coaching business. Are you, is CTS absorbing those athletes that they're bringing to you? And then you're just passing that as a one-to-one onto them. And then they're under the CTS model under a different pricing, 
or or they're staying separate under that person's old business. The, so the answer is yes, CTS is absorbing okay. it, but yeah. we do it in kind of a logical format yeah. ap- along breakpoints. Yeah, that makes so sense. So there's like if they have if they have contracts that are coming up for renewal, we'll do it on that on that point. Sometimes we have to do like a lock, stock, and barrel. Like, hey, listen, all of your athletes are paying two hundred bucks a month. You, we're going to start running all those payments through CTS at XYZ date. But most of the time, you know, you got to think about it. We can hand, we can, we can really craft. We're not talking about massive scales of widgets that we're kind of moving around. We're talking about 20, 30, 40 individual contracts. We, for any one coach, we can look at that and say, okay, well, you know, Dirk's, you know, coming up with this race, we'll transition his payment from, you to CTS at that point in time, Jeff, there's a logical point here. We'll transition this from there yeah, to there. Yeah. So we, yeah. we try to take it as logical, as logically as possible. Yeah, that makes sense. I'll, I'll add to that. We, we learned that, uh, we made a mistake and learned the hard way in letting coaches keep their clients separate. Um, and it was not what we anticipated early that they were going to be poaching, you know, clients or anything like that. It was rather that by keeping their clients under their own business, we really had no idea what kind of load, um, what kind of roster mm. that coach actually had. And the problem came in that, you know, we knew how many clients we had given them, um, yeah. but they were way in over their head and that affected the quality of service our clients were getting and that affects our business and, and, and that wasn't okay. So that was something we learned the hard way. So um, yeah, if we're ever in that situation again, going forward, we'll do the same in that, you know, we're going to absorb those clients. That's a good point. It's tricky. It adds another layer of complication, but I, I think there's there's a whole other host of business reasons why you would want to do that and go through that extra burden. But I I, I think it's worth it mm-hmm. because your your product is kind of a little bit more. You have more confidence in. It. I was going to say homogenize. That just sounds like cold. <laughs> but you have just you just have more confidence in it, mm-hmm. right? When when you kind of know like everything currency. that's going on within yeah. that exactly. channel. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. yeah. This leads into uh, I guess coach athlete ratios. You know. What are you looking for for yourself, but maybe more importantly for your assistants? What what kind of client numbers you're looking at? That also relates to pricing. You know, higher pricing means maybe lower volume. Uh, the spread of services that your assistants are actually offering plays into this as well. So, you know, what are you looking for in terms of coach athlete uh, number ratios, Heather? kick it off well this has been a a learning lesson (laughs) this is so right from the get-go you know when it was just my husband and i we had no idea you know how much do Uh we charge how how many again business is not our background we do (laughs) we have no business training so um I'll, I'll be completely transparent. When we started, we charged $45 a month. That's it. Mm. Yeah, oh, my God. I know. I know. Did you start in 1980? I know. Oh, my God. We, you know, and it, that was clearly uh, just a lack of confidence on our part. And yeah. so, you know, that has certainly risen over time. And even now we're in the position where um, we charge $197 a month. And I, I truly struggle. You know, I think that um, what we provide is worth a lot more than that. However, you know, looking at the market and, and trying to, um, yeah, it's just, it's a really tough thing, you know, especially when you're trying to cater to maybe non elites and people who don't have a ton of money, but want to have that, um, experience, 
it puts you in a weird position where you're like, I know we're worth more and we should charge more, but do we really want to? But anyway, um, as far as that goes, we have definitely over the years just kept increasing, increasing, increasing. Um, but the funny story was just last year, we finally had to tell some of our original clients who were still with us all these years later, like, Hey, you got to pay us more than $45 a month. Yeah. (laughs) That's a good point, Heather. That's a really, really good point. Yeah. You need to, you know, grandfathered in, but exactly. And they were all like, we've been telling you that for years, like, let us pay you more money. So it it worked out well. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. So, but as far as the piece on um, ratios that varies from coach to coach, Newer coaches, we start them very small, you know, whether it's like three or five clients and that's it. And we see how well they can do with everything. And we we're constantly, my husband and I reaching out to clients, um, just to get feedback. Like, how's everything going, uh, with your coach? Are you feeling good? And our coaches know we do this. So, um, you know, just to kind of keep that line of communication open, um, with those coaches who are coaching part-time, usually they'll be pretty, pretty upfront with, Hey, like five to 10 is my number. I don't want any more than that. And and we totally respect that. We're not going to push them to do more because we'd rather have quality you know, and service. We'd rather have them do a really good job than just bring us in more money or bring themselves in more money. On the other hand, with the coaches who do want to coach full-time, um, we kind of take that step by step as well. There's no set number. Some people just do a better job with more clients. Some do a better job with less. Personally, I've had to feel it out over the years. I've gone as high as I think the most I ever had at one time was like 45 clients. That was way too many for me, especially with everything else I do. And I've gone all the way down to the other end where I've worked with only five at a time. Um, and, and that worked well for a while. For me, my happy spot with everything else I do with the writing and, and the, um, you know, just running the business, 10, 10 is my happy place. I know that's not, that's not a lot for a lot of people. My husband, on the other hand, is in like the 30 range. Um, and yeah, and I would say with our coaches, it's anywhere, it's kind of in between that. Um, but we do try to limit those part-time coaches to like, I would say 10 clients because, you know, with the rest of life, we feel like that's, that's a safe area where no one's going to get left behind or forgotten about. Is it the same pricing for your assistants as for you? Yeah. Yeah. We do the same pricing across the board. Um, we've definitely talked about, you know, charging more for certain coaches who have a lot more experience or a lot more credentials, which I know a lot of people do, um, you know, like especially coaching businesses that have elite athletes who work for them, they may charge a lot more for, to work with that person and then a newer coach. Um, we currently don't do that simply because um, being a smaller business, it's often it, it's just often hard to um, say at any given time like who's going to have room for another client, um, and we just feel it, it creates less confusion on our end. So that's just a decision we've made, and we offer only one service. Another thing we've done simply because it's easier on our end um, running the business. It's just one-on-one monthly coaching. You know as much communication as you need as a client. Um, that's it. And $197 a month. Yeah. We tried for a while to do, Oh, I take that back. Let me back up. We do have a multi-sport option. Um, we do not market ourselves as triathlon coaches, even though we do have two coaches who are triathlon coaching certified, um, both through USA triathlon and USCA. Um, and we do work with a lot of adventure racers. So that does cost more, uh, money per month, but for our ultra runners, it's just here it is. You want strength training? We're going to put that in there. You want to talk about, you know, race day planning? That's included too. It's just one price mm-hmm. across the board. All right. 
Jeff, what are you looking at in terms of coach client ratio numbers? Well, so my assistant coaches are building still. So they, they all have pretty small loads right now, you know, six to 10 athletes. Um, and I carry in the thirties. Usually I think I have 34 right now. Um, I have been as high in the last seven years. I've been as high as 60 and that was insane. And I, and I have to say, I wasn't giving good service, you know, because this is too many. And that's when I realized that like, I can't do this like this. And that was where some of the catalyst for, um, figuring out, you know, how do I bring assistance on and that kind of thing. And that, that, that came to a head and, and I would never have that many athletes again, ever. Um, you know, I learned really quickly that is not, that's not a way to run a business because then you, 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 you provide poor customer service. You know, it, even if they don't see it, you're, you're, you're still providing poor customer service. You know, even if you can like act like you have all the balls in the air, no problem. You don't, you're dropping balls, you know, whether you like mm-hmm. it or not. So, mm-hmm. so that was a good learning experience for me personally as a coach and in, in a new industry, you know, been, you know, in, you know, I used to juggle 30 projects in graphic design, you know, and uh, a varying, <laughs> you know, at times. So, um, and so that, that was good to like understand what, where my ceiling is. Um, so, so I'm, I'm a premium being the head coach. So if you're going to, you know, and I've increased my prices this year, um, they had been the same for years, five years. I hadn't increased my prices. And I finally, you know, I started out low prices in the beginning and then I slowly kind of slowly up them over the years, the first like three years. And then I kind of stayed in the same place for like four or five years. And, and so I decided, um, that I would, you know, I'm, I become a premium. I've been full and, and I, and I actually like sent out an email and gave all my clients, my current clients on that pricing model. I gave them a deadline and said, Hey, on this date, we're going to increase pricing and I'm going to give you an intro pricing for six months, meaning I'm going to increase it, but not increase it to the full for six months. And then it's going to increase to the full. So that, and, and I had, I only had one person leave, so it, it was not a problem. Um, and you know, I was, I have to say I was stressing about it, you know? Yeah. And, you know, when you say, Hey, I want more money. Um, but you know, I hadn't, like I said, you know, we, we've got all this stuff going on with like inflation and everything else. And I was like, you know what? I have the same prices as I've had forever. So that was one. And then my, my coaches are a little less. I'm three forty-seven a month. My coaches are two forty-seven. My assistant coaches are two forty-seven a month. And we have one coach under a two seventeen a month. Um, and so, uh, what else? Oh, and then we also have a one fifty-seven a month group coaching option. So it's, it's more of like the budget option, um, limited touch points, still get a custom plan, but you're not getting like as much one-on-one or there's no one-on-one. It's a group setting like group video calls. So, um, that I run, so you still get access, limited access to me as the head coach, but I have an assistant coach writing plans and that, and that option. So then that's kind of where we, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. You mentioned ramping, they're ramping up and they have six to 10 now. Where's like this sweet spot? Well, I think, I think I have, I have, I have three coaches right now that would like to be full time. Like that's their goal. They understand they're all, you know, um, one's a PT and she has a consulting PT business. And, and, and so she's got some other buckets of income coming in. So she's great. She's in a good place. She's just like, I'm I just want to grow it organically. I'm ready to, you know, anytime I get more, I'm, I'm fine with more, 
you know? So I kind of feel out each coach, like, what are you comfortable with? And each, mm-hmm. and I have another one who has a, has a, has a full-time job. My sit, my, the one that's the, the, the least amount. And he, and so he's, he doesn't have as much time, but he wants to be, he wants to transition into being a coach full-time. So, and we've all talked about this, this, you know, this is an organic process, right? You're, we're not just going to like slam you, you know, overnight, you're going to grow like one, just like I did. You're going to grow one person at a time and you're going to take care of them. And then you're going to grow another one. And then, you know what I mean? And so that's really where we, where we kind of are right now. Um, everyone would, I mean, ideally I'd love for each of my coaches to have 20 or 30 athletes, you know, down the road, but, um, I'm fine with it organically growing too, because that's how you, one, you learn and you get more experience as you, coach more people and have to balance it. Right. You have to figure out how do I balance, you know, this many coaches and, and like, you know, I'm big on touch points too, like communication, talking to the athletes. I'm not a big fan of not talking to an athletes or just giving feedback in a little form, like, like spreadsheet style. Like that drives me. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a pet peeve of mine. Like we're, we are going to talk to our athletes you know, every three weeks, bare minimum. And then they have, they have access to their coaches, you know, text and email in between those calls as, you know, as much as needed. I think we give them a, you know, ballpark, Hey, three, three a week. So you don't, you're not just being that squeaky wheel, like actually organize your thoughts and put it in an email or a text. But, you know, so I'm driving, trying to drive those athletes to be organized as well to, to my coaches, but, but it's not a hard, fast rule. Right. Of like that, you know, if you give me four texts a week, I'm not going to be like, Hey, you can't do that. Um, but, but I, but we are communicating with our athletes because how do you get to know your athletes without talking to them? I, I don't even understand how coaching businesses work if you're just doing spreadsheets, like, and not talking to them. So that's a big part of our business is touch points. That nightmare scenario you just talked about, if I have no idea how, like I saw that in my family business starting in the eighties. My father started coaching in the 80s. And I, Heather, I joked about 80s pricing. Yeah. But my dad started out as saying to himself, well, there's like three coaches in the entire U.S. that do this. And uh, he figured he could charge $75 a month because that was the membership at the local health club. That's <laughs> That was our pricing model, too. I love it. <laughs> so it was like he anchored it. He anchored it to the health club pricing and people are paying that today. So I'll charge $75, but he needed a hundred plus athletes. Right. Yeah. And it wasn't even Google spreadsheets back then. Like it wasn't even Excel spreadsheets. It was the fax machine. And so under the fax machine every day, paper was just piling up all day long. Like blogs are coming in via paper and we were sending out, uh, wow. but there's a lot of phone calls obviously as well. Um, Jason, uh, what do you guys target CTS coach athlete ratios? It, I mean, it's really similar to, to what both Heather and Jeff has me- have mentioned. I, I kind of anchor it a little bit differently as I just look at the time allocation that each athlete needs. And it's about one athlete, one hour per athlete per week. When you look at all the things a coach does, which is prescribe the training, analyze the training and communicate, communicate via phone or text or email or whatever you're in in the training log or all three, you look across all three of those things and it takes about an hour per athlete per week over long periods of time, not every single week with every single athlete 
But when you average it out over long periods of time, over many coaches, over many athletes, that's about how it roughly, depending upon what your service model actually is, roughly what it works out to. Yeah, you can have super efficient coaches. And I know coaches that, that can squeeze and deliver great service, have super high retention rates that can, you know, maybe do it on 45 minutes or 50 minutes or something like that when they look at it over a long period of time. I know super detailed coaches that might spend an hour and a half or something like that. But really that, that range, when we're talking about the service delivery model that, that Heather and Jeff and I all use, it's kind of a tight little bubble there. And really there's not a lot of kind of, kind of differences around that. Um, so it starts out with that. And if you extrapolate that to a normal 40 hour work week, that's a cap of 40 athletes. Most of our coaches are 75% or 100% full-time coaches, irrespective of whether they're an independent contractor, their employment class is an independent contractor, or they are, are, or they are actually a full-time employee. So if you can you know, run the quick math on that, most coaches are handling between 30 and, and 40 athletes. Sure, there are people at the edges of the bell curve that are, that are a little bit different, but for the mo- for most of our coaching group, they're in that thirty to forty athlete range the entire time. As am I. I set a cap at forty. I might drift one above that every every so often, but between thirty seven and forty athletes is really really consistent for me. I only take on one new athlete pretty much every twelve months. Um, so just like Jeff and, and Heather, I'm pretty much always full. I don't carry a wait list. You know, I have kind of a built in wait list with the rest of our coaching group. Um, but fundamentally, I don't think that that's a good business model to keep an athlete kind of like in the wings or on the hook or whatever for some sort of indefinite amount of time. So I don't touch that piece of it with a nine foot pole. I would rather just say, listen, I have other coaching options for you. Here's who might be good for you. And I, and just like these coaches are building up their businesses as well. We've got, uh, we've, we kind of have that pipeline as well. We do have the added wrinkle that I think is a little bit of a, of a difference here to where when we bring on our independent contract coaches, we insist that they be able to handle a minimum of 10 to 12 athletes. And the reason for that is kind of twofold. This is one, we don't want hundreds of independent contractors out there that are all managing three or four athletes. It's kind of unsustainable from a management perspective. It's just too many people to, to, to manage. But the second thing is, and this is something I kind of instituted with when I was coaching director, is that there's a certain frequency that a coach needs in order to become proficient where they're coaching at a certain rate every week or with a kind of a certain volume every week to which I'm more comfortable with their end product. And if they're spending 25 to 30, at least 25 to 33% of their total work time within coaching, I think that that commands enough of their attention to focus on it. I would like it to be more. And certainly our full-time coaches, they develop at a faster rate than our half-time coaches. I mean, I, I've, whenever I look at a coach's experience, I combine the number of years that they've been coaching with the, um, the percentage of time that they've been coaching for. And that tells me their total, their total coaching experience, not just their total amount of years coaching. Um, so I would like that number in an ideal world. Everybody's a full-time employee. Everybody coaches 35 athletes. I think that creates a, a, a really good product and a really good system but just the business conditions that, that exist today just makes it pragmatically not very, uh, it's just not very practical to, 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 to kind of implement. 
Um, so on the pricing side, I'll start from a global side as well. All of this is publicly available. You guys can, you know, go and find it. But we have three fundamental like levels of coaching packages um, that are delineated by the coach. And so the coach is delineated by their experience and their the basically their tenure and the results that they've achieved. So you, you can imagine me, 25 years experience. I'm kind of at the top end of that spectrum. Somebody that we hired six months ago is going to be one of what we call our select level coaching. Um, but so those three levels are between 207 and 225 a month for the, for the, what we call select level coaching for our premium level coaching is about 390 a month. And then the ultimate level coaching, which is where I'm at is between six and $700 a month, depending upon the kind of the, the, the length of the contract. Um, so all that kind of like some totals is, is we've got kind of all these different options for athletes to kind of come into the system based on kind of who they want as a coach, how long, how much experience that coach actually has. But fundamentally, even with me, I still spend one hour per athlete per week coaching athletes. And I've done that for my entire, almost my entire coaching career, even though I've built different models and things like that, which are outside the scope of, uh, of this conversation. But, um, that time commitment is not really any different between me and somebody who coaches at one of those other levels, it's kind of the experience that delineates the, the, the price points, essentially. How about other services that you might offer? Camps, consulting, Jeff, you mentioned group, this lower price group one, you already mentioned that. Have you dabbled in any other service offerings? Um, you know, and stuck with any of them? I have personally, I've messed, well, I've messed around with um, some like, kind of like uh, you leveraging a technology that delivers a video to your tech to a text message you know once a week for like a weekly tip but it was like the return on investment wasn't that great after two years and it was one of those when i analyzed it i was like you know what i'm phasing this out you know so i phased that out that was in the early you know first probably four years of doing it you know, I was, you know, me being an entrepreneur, I was thinking of try, trying to think outside of the box of like new cool ways to like leverage technology. Um, it didn't pan out quite the way I envisioned it. Um, so I let that one go. Um, it was just like a, a weekly tips thing. Um, I, I've played around like I'm currently um, uh, been doing some motivational speaking just for me personally. I do consulting calls so you can sign up for one time consulting calls um, on my website. I have, you know, I have canned plans on training peaks, right? It's just one-time plans for sale. So that's a, that's a piece of revenue that comes in every month. Um, and then, uh, let's see what else I had a list here. I wanted to make sure I had no, oh. no camps. Um, I have done camps in the past with like Chrissy mail and that was through Colorado running ranch, but that kind of fell apart after COVID. Um, I've talked about doing camps again, um, but you know, it's it, part of its bandwidth of organization, it's a hard business model. It's it is a really hard business. It model. is really hard yeah, to make really money on the model. camps, you know, cause there's a lot of expenses in camps. Yeah. So you really, the, the profit margin is like tiny and you have yeah. to nail it or you don't make any money or you even end up spending yeah. money. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I have tons yeah. of athletes who would love me to do camps again. Cause I had multiple, we did like three years of, of a camp every year yeah. in Colorado. Um, which I loved it. And I'm Chrissy Mail and I used to do one in Mount hood when I lived in Oregon and, and they were great, 
and and lots of good feedback from them, but they just aren't that profitable. But in both those scenarios, yeah. we were just paid as independent contractors to come in and coach. So for us, it was yeah. great because we just different. we just yeah. we just kind of slide no in risk. and hang out and get paid. And and then the person organizing yeah. it was dealing with all the logistics. But as I've looked into it on yeah. my own personal, and I start running numbers in a spreadsheet, I'm like this doesn't pencil out very well. Um, yeah. Trust me, man. I did that. I did that for years. It's a hard business model. Yeah. It's a hard business model. So, the, so I've been doing motivational speaking. I've been doing, um, um, I'm also doing like just a really simple, like, uh, OFM coaching. So like optimized fat metabolism, kind of eight, eight week course, um, that people can sign up for like one time course, um, I also have one of my athletes who's a PT and she does a bunch of movement stuff and kin stretch certified and movement certified. And, uh, uh, and so she's doing a movement assessment coaching, like a remote thing through video, um, for people to sign up for if they're, especially if we get some, you know, we our median age for our coaching, um, roster is 45 years old. So, um, so, and so that's a good one to look at, like, what's your core demographic? And so a lot of times we have people that are running ultras and they, you know, they're middle of the back of the Packers and they just, they want to just be, they just want longevity and they want to keep running and they don't want to hurt. And so we're, we're helping them with nutrition. We're helping them with, um, we're helping them with movement and like diagnosing, you know, a long time imbalance that they've been dealing with. Um, one of the reasons that I was super stoked to have Trish come on as a PT because she, she's a built-in PT in our business from a consultant perspective, yeah. we leverage that knowledge a lot. Um, especially if we have a hard case where it's like chronic, mm -hmm. something just keeps popping up and you're like, you know, it's like, you know, four weeks of training and then six weeks off and four weeks of training. And you're like, ah, you know, and that's the, that is the challenge of remote coaching, right? Because you're not, you can't go physically to that person. They might be in, like, I have someone in Poland. Like I can't just physically go to Poland and watch him run. Right. And so, and, and hang out with them, you know? So like those kind of things, they, we've got to leverage other, you know, subcontractors in our sphere of people we know to like, you know, try to get them to get a, an assessment. And then that means they have to fork out more money for someone else's service. And we have to, you know, they have to see the benefit in it. So there's a lot of like, but that usually they trust us by that time. And we're trying to get them through, that hard time of like, whether it's an injury or some kind of, usually it's some kind of weird imbalance, you know, that they've had for years, but they, it just has never been diagnosed. Yeah. Heather, have you done any other service offerings? Yeah. So, um, so we do, um, write one-time training plans on demand occasionally. It depends on the situation. I won't, um, I won't take that on with every person who requests it. it, you know, definitely have to meet certain parameters, but we, we do offer that, um, occasional consulting, but I will say that out for me personally, outside of our coaching business and the numbers mentioned, um, I would say about half of our household income does come from my writing, um, whether it's, um, you know, ad revenue on my website or just freelance writing for other, um, publications. And that okay. again is all within the same sphere of okay. talking about ultra running, running, things like that. So that is definitely a big part of what we do. Um, just again, not, not in the same business structure. <laughs> yeah. Jason, you wrote the book. So, uh, uh, that's an additional kind of service, if you will, revenue stream. Um, 
was your experience and the lessons learned from that? Uh, the book's great. I mean, I'm not gonna lie. It's, uh, it, it was kind of the, it's almost the origin story of, of how we got a footprint into ultra running is we kind of simultaneously started working with some elite athletes and produced a book. And that provided this initial platform to kind of build up a kind of a silo of the, uh, of the business on it because, because before, and I've told this story many times, including on your podcast, Dirk, I, I tried to get to, I tried to offer up coaching to ultra runners in the early two thousands and mid two thousands. And it was a resounding, no, I got laughed at a lot of different meetings, uh, with a lot of different companies and a lot of different elite athletes, many, many, many times over. And I didn't think that there was a marketplace for it. And some, somehow that, that, that changed. And I think a combination of the book and some of the lead athlete success, uh, kind of coming together at the same time, uh, was, what was a big part of that. So that, that's a big part of it. Um, I also produce educational materials through USCA. We've mentioned that a few times. So both their certification and then conferences and things like that, those have been both ridiculously well-received in the market and something that I wholly, uh, underappreciated the need for when I first started doing it. I did not think that there was a big marketplace for it, but every single you know, a month when Rick and I kind of go over the numbers, I'm floored at how much interest we continue to receive in those products. <clears throat> um, I then have, a, I know I'll also have a new product in the marketplace. It's currently uh, a loss leader for me right now. So I'm not generating profit on it. It's generating a loss. And that's the research essentials for ultra running product. I'm super bullish on it. And I'm going to continue to run that freaking thing into the ground and invest in it because I just really like the product. I think it's very high quality and in a, in an, in a sphere in a time where so much content is just garbage and watered down and misinterpreted, uh, in, and kind of lay publications. I think this can kind of stand on its own, uh, own two legs, but it's going to need that cake's going to need a few more months to actually get, uh, to actually get baked. So that, that's another service offering that I, that I do. And then, um, I also do some, uh, I would say more like, uh, kind of, uh, like bigger consulting projects or bigger s service and support projects. So, uh, like when I supported Timothy Olson on the Pacific crest trail, that was, you know, 50 days of my time that I was out there, you know, indisposed traveling around in obscure places in California, Oregon, and Washington. That was a paid for support activity. And I've done that in, in a couple of different flavors over the, uh, over the course of my uh, career. I will take those on as special kind of consulting projects, but they kind of have to, I'm kind of at the point where they have to meet a minimum threshold. So I don't really get into like the hourly consulting or anything like that. I think that there's, there's room for that in the marketplace. Absolutely. Uh, from a, from a business perspective, but it's not something that I really, uh, 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 that, that I really, uh, <clears throat> that I really get involved in. Um, similar to Jeff, I've had a lot of experiences in camps. You know, we had a $2 million a year camp product, uh, that, that, that I managed for years and it is a really hard business model. It's a, it's a fantastic business because you get like physical touch points with the athletes. You get to bring in your athletes and create better connections with them as well as use it as a recruiting model. So there's pin action outside of the penciled in spreadsheet that Jess was trying to wrestle with, with earlier that you need to take into consideration with those businesses. Um, I did that pre COVID, uh, both with CTS and then underneath my own umbrella and COVID kind of wiped those out. And I honestly haven't had the interest to, to, to bring it back up. CTS is bringing back up the ultra running camps, uh, as of, uh, 2024, uh, in kind of a limited, uh, uh, limited capacity. 
Uh, I don't do anything outside of that. So static programs, I don't touch with a nine foot pole. I realize that Dirk, you've tried to convince me and CTS to do that for years. And we've always kind of shy, shied away from it. I don't, I don't, I, once again, I think that there's a place in the marketplace for it. I just don't want to serve that place. That's the way that I, that I've put it. I realize that there's value in it for certain people. I just don't want to, I just don't want to play ball in that, uh, in that ecosystem. Um, I'd be remiss to mention, and this might dovetail into your next topic, Dirk, that I've made a lot of mistakes. And part of my role as vice president of operations and director of coaching is just to try to come up with different coaching products, just like Jeff mentioned, right? We're trying to be entrepreneurial and come up with different coaching products and things like that. And I'm not going to go every single through every single one of those and, and their different failure points, save for the common thread that has woven between all of those. And that is whenever I have tried to extract more leverage out of our coaching staff, so what I mean by that is, is more athletes that they can handle either through technology or skimping out on the services, limiting the calls or limiting the turnaround frequency or limiting the communication or starting out with stock programs, right? In, in a way to make the build process more efficient. Whenever I have tried to do that and have, have had one coach have 100 athletes, 200 athletes, 300 athletes, of which I have personally done. I've had 300 athletes underneath my umbrella at, at one point, underneath a completely different service delivery model. Those models have always failed. And there's a reason that we resort to $200 price points and $300 price points and $500 price points where we have right now. It's because I've made, I personally, and from a business perspective, have made those have made those mistakes of which there are many, but the common theme is is trying to get too much leverage out of a service delivery model. Yeah, and that's where the hour per athlete per week it really just it it holds up. That's you I mean that's where I it. You can't no get you can't, it. and that's what I've come to too. You know my in my own organic path, the same exact one. Um, you know even with all the years of production and technology background. And, and all this stuff I can leverage, it's still really an hour per athlete per week. And, and you can't get, you can't and really get, not if you're going to provide good custom service to that athlete. Yeah. Yeah. I, like I said, I know that there are permutations of that, of like group coaching and all these other things that you can deploy. But if you're using a one-to-one -one service delivery model, yeah, there's kind of no other way around it. Yeah. Like you can fake it with copy and paste programming. And once again, I've, uh, I've done that, like literally copied and pasted from Word documents and spreadsheets and things like that to come up with coaching. This was 20 years ago. So it's not anything that's all that recent. And I've also helped software engineers build technology that would somehow improve that service delivery, right? So in some form or fashion, either you're either you're helping the build process or you're helping the onboarding process or you're helping the analysis process or you're helping the feedback loop or something. You know, any, any of those touch points that take human time, I've tried to work with software engineers to, to, to smooth it out and you can only do it to, to a certain degree. I'm not just, I'm not saying that you can't use technology to be more efficient. You can, yeah. but there's a cap on that leverage. And yeah. I've just found that cap within the service delivery that I use to be about one hour per athlete per week. I'm not, I'm still kind of holding out though, to, if I'm being honest, like I'm, I still think that there might be some AI or machine learning type of technology that might change the landscape, but that's another, another conversation. That's a whole nother podcast, dude. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll get down to that later. <laughs> well, I mean, you guys are all, you know, pioneers in this, this space, you know, I mean, 
Jason said no one wanted coaching back in the early 2000s. And that wasn't that long ago, you know. And, no. uh, you know, my father owned a running store uh, in the 80s. And I was a 10-year-old doing the stocking in the back, back of the running store. And, you know, he gravitated towards coaching triathletes because they were the ones that would pull out their wallets and pay, right? Um, we sort of built a business starting out around triathlon and training peaks and, and then cycling are now equal, you know, cycling triathlon in terms of our overall business revenue is more equal. Um, running is definitely a distant third, but yet the fastest growing and primarily because of ultra running, you know, um, not marathoning. Um, I still feel like marathon running Folks are still about the Timex watch. They're at the track. They know a 400 meter track. They know their pace. Um, you know, ultra running, you get into GPS, you know, VAM, you know, how many feet did I run today vertically? It's not a simple pace mathematical model, you know, that you can back Terrain into. Terrain is way different. It muddies the algorithm. Temperature, <laughs> I, temperature, heat, cold, uh, transitions and nutrition and everything else, right? So, yeah, I really want to like, you know, you guys are definitely pioneers. This is the beginning, if you will, of of this kind of career path within this sport. Um, Jason said some of his mistakes. Uh, been on doing this for two hours. Maybe we'll start to think about wrapping it up. Any kind of uh, <laughs> opening up in terms of uh, how, you know, what are some big mistakes you've uh, made along the way, uh, Jeff? Big mistakes. Um, at first, I think it just at first, like kind of putting everyone in kind of their own, like in kind of a, a general umbrella of like, Hey, I can just kind of write this plan with these kind of key date days each week. But what you realize is that, you know, like my, my onboarding questionnaire has gotten way bigger, um, mm -hmm. you know, with just like history and sports history and running history and like injury history and all those other things that I think in the early days, I, I didn't, I didn't appreciate that, the, that individual background or history of the athlete as much as I do now. Um, I still, I still kind of dabbled in it and asked some questions, but I, I probe way deeper now, um, mm. than I used to. So I think that's, that's probably the biggest mistake I made in the early days um, and then, uh, um, and then also understanding, you know, their age and what their goals are too. Right. Like is your, you know, how competitive are you? Right. Like I have everything from front of the pack to the very back of the pack, you know? So as far as coaching. And so I have competitive athletes and I have non-competitive athletes and they don't care about competing. They just care about like beating the cutoffs, you know, they might be 61 yeah, yeah. years old and trying to beat a cutoff and they just don't want to get timed out. So, you know, or whether it's, you know, fixing a stomach or something like that, there's so many puzzle pieces in ultra running. And I think, yeah. um, you have to have a very broad base knowledge for our sport of a lot of stuff. Um, not just like, Oh, training, you know, it, it has to be nutrition yeah. and it has to be hydration and electrolyte balance. And like, you know, there's, and, and they're, you know, all their other like background of like, you know, injury risk. So what, what each athlete individually can handle when you're coaching. And so that's probably my biggest mistake was, was, was generalizing that at the beginning more than I do now. Yeah. And, and making assumptions around what you think their definition of success should be, but like actually asking them, like, like yeah, said, exactly. Probing. Like, oh, yeah. What do you, 
what do you really want from me? You know, oh, that's what you want. Oh, I thought you wanted this, you know? <laughs> right. Uh, Heather, mistakes um, along the way, business yeah. or coaching? I, I've got three big ones I'll, mm. I'll tell you about. Um, so first of all is going to be just, if you don't come from a business background, like, like me, I would have gone back and hired somebody like a business coach. I mean, our mm. approach was throwing spaghetti at the wall see what sticks $45 a month. I mean, we just, we were winging it. So that was a huge mistake. And again, I'm not joking when I say we're still fixing things, <laughs> but we made mistakes all those years ago. Um, next big mistake was initially trying to be everything to everyone. Like any potential client that would come to us, I, I so desperately wanted them to work with us that I would make, right. you know, these great promises. Um, I think we've done a great job as a community, as a coaching community in getting coaches to understand scope of practice, um, with maintaining your scope of practice, but what we don't talk about as much as scope of knowledge, um, you know, just because you're qualified to, to maybe help somebody with a specific goal doesn't necessarily mean you're the best person for it. And by taking on that client, you might be selling them short and selling yourself short. Um, you know, like, uh, an example, um, well, we'll go back to when, when Jason was talking about the three things he looks for when hiring new coaches is that personal experience. Um, something that was very important to us when we're bringing on new coaches is that they have done these big distances. We mainly, you know, get a lot of people who want to run their first hundred miler. And while we know coaches could adequately help somebody get to a finish line of a hundred miler, if they've never done it themselves, that doesn't always equate to a good client experience because, you know, a client can be like, well, what do I do at 3am when I'm exhausted and I'm crying and I want to quit. And, you know, if the coach is like, I don't know, I've never been there. <laughs> we're not providing such a great experience. And, and I did that myself with, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of some examples early on, um, like trying to help people who wanted to qualify for a Boston marathon and, you know, run a hundred miler and do all of these things at one time when what I should have told them was, no, we're not going to do that. Or if you really want to do it, you can go to somebody else. So anyway, that that's my second one. Um, and what was my third one? Oh, it's, oh gosh. Here we go. This well, I'll come and I'll fill it. I'll fill in the space while you're <laughs> yeah, thinking. Please do, please do. I think I think number two is a really good one. Learning to tell your athlete no, because <laughs> mm -hmm. we want. I or mean, not sometimes hiring someone you're not the right that? fit, right? Or you yeah. or don't hire someone you're not the right fit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, that's been one. So now I, I I interview. So sometimes, and I'm very honest up front. If someone's interviewing me as a coach, I'm honest in my philosophy, and if it doesn't really line up. I'm very honest with them. And I've had people go, yeah, yeah, I don't think it's a good fit. And I'm fine with that. I'm totally fine with that. I'd rather work with someone I'm going to really going to click with on their philosophy and their whole life philosophy even. And, and I, and, and, and then, you know, just learning to tell we sometimes as a coach, we can fall into the, and I'm going to call it a trap. We fall into the trap of being a yes person. And mm -hmm. because you don't want to, disappoint the person right. but we mm -hmm. in ultra running we have type a addictive personalities and sometimes they want to shine to sign up for an ultra every three four weeks and you're sometimes mm -hmm. you just got to be like you know what that 50k two weeks out from your hundred is not a good idea right and yeah and, and you know and so just learning to 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 explain to them why you know, let them down easy, but say, you know what, that is not a good idea. Now, if they still sign up for it, there's nothing you can do about it. They are, they are an adult and they can make mm -hmm. their own decisions. But as a coach, you need to be honest with them 
and learn to be brutally honest at times, but in a soft, caring way. Right, right. Okay, I remembered the third one. <laughs> it's a big oh, one. Awesome. Um, Work-life balance and boundaries. Uh, huge. <laughs> that was a big mistake I made in the beginning. You know, I, we see it all the time. People are like, I love to run. I want to quit my job so I can run all the time. I'll be a coach. Um, we work seven days a week sometimes. You know, we're working ridiculous hours sometimes because it's our business. Um, so we've really had to learn how to set those, you know, work-life boundaries, but also our work-life balance. But also setting boundaries with clients. You going back to what you were just saying, Jeff. You want to be a yes man. You want to be a people pleaser sometimes, and that can go too far. You've got clients texting you at all hours, and and you know asking questions that are not that important or at, for that moment. Like nobody needs to know at two a.m. about you know what pace they should be running three Saturdays from now. Things like that. Or or um, I've had issues where clients would hop on a Zoom call with me, and we'd start talking about coaching, and then they'd go off on a tangent about their personal life and just, you know, it gets a little, it gets a little tricky there. And so learning to really set those boundaries, both for yourself as a business person and yourself as a coach, um, huge mistake took me years to learn, but it's great yeah. when you get there. <laughs> and from a personal standpoint, those boundaries are important, especially if you have a wife and kids, you know, there's mm -hmm. been times, you know, cause as you guys know, it never shuts off as a coach, like, especially on the weekends, because that's when everyone's training and they're like, they're not on their work clock. So there's like, Oh, it's a weekend. And they're thinking oh. about ultra running. It's their hobby. Mm -hmm. So they're like, ah, texting their coach. And there's times when I'm like, I have to sometimes either turn my phone on airplane mode when I go to dinner or leave it in the car. Like I've, you know, and I don't always do that. Sometimes I'm really bad at it and I'll get caught up in like, oh, I'm working, you know, I'm over here. Yeah. Like, and while my mm -hmm. whole family's having a conversation and I'm in my own little coaching world, which, and I shouldn't be, that's yeah. very inappropriate behavior at that moment. Right. So learning those boundaries as a coach too, to be like, if you do have a family or a significant other that you probably shouldn't be coaching when you're at dinner with them, you know, mm -hmm. learn to shut it off. Yeah. 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 It's, it's tough when you're a business owner, you're 24 seven, you know, and learning to, 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 you know, when to turn it off definitely is, is the hard decision. Jason, anything we left out or anything you want to hit upon here? Um, if we have the time, I do, I know this podcast is running a little bit long, but I do want to get into some future trends. Maybe we can yeah. wrap that up really quick. Yeah, well, sure. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, uh, I'm not gonna expand upon uh, what Heather and Jeff just went over uh, other than to say, um, you know, one of the other constant mistakes that I've made has been, especially in ultra running, has had to do with underestimating the marketplace when it's an exponentially growing market. And I have this very unique experience to where I was managing products in the cycling market, the triathlon market, and the ultra running market. And they were all doing different things from a growth perspective. Dirk, as you're very aware, the cycling market has been kind of crap over the past eight or 10 years or something like that. And on the flip side, the ultra running market has been growing exponentially. And whenever I've applied the same mindset across business development in those two areas, I've constantly kind of gotten it wrong. And I've constantly underestimated the marketplace from a running perspective. I should have come out with a book two years before I did it. It took, you know, my good friend, Jim Rutberg, two years, two years to cajole me into writing that because I didn't think that the market would be receptive to it. 
Same thing with the USCA certification. It took Rick a number of months to cajole me into like creating that product because I didn't think that there was a marketplace it's for it. It's such a so. needed product, dude. I'm glad you I did know, it. I know, but I, I, I'm, I will I'm take glad. it. I'm I really promise. Glad. I promise. Uh, no, you're, it's, it's good. It's good. I'd like to get your feedback from it too because I'm working on version 2.0. But I guess my point is, is it's a growing marketplace. And when you're in a growing marketplace, don't underestimate the market. The market forces as a whole, when you're growing that quickly, kind of take care of a lot of the flaws and the things that you don't think will work and stuff like that, because you have this tailwind that you can take advantage of to put things out in the marketplace that you can't do when, when a market's declining or flat. I wouldn't take that approach within other marketplaces because you don't have this, those same tailwinds. Yeah, it's about taking some risk you know, on, yeah. on the upside when you can potentially... Um, yeah. How about some future trends or, uh, thoughts of where we might, where might we be in 10 years from now? Uh, I know that seems really far out five years, you know, like, can we even think that far out? But like, in terms of I, I, wherever you want to go with it, you know, you know, coaching within, I hope spreadsheets go away. <laughs> you're here that's yep. my business model that's my business model <laughs> oh, yeah i've man. noticed a, such a, a great trend in in um coaches stepping up their game with education it's no longer yeah. like well this is what's always worked for me or this is what people have been doing for years you know that's no longer the case and so the coaches who are not keeping up with the science and keeping up with um you know current literature it's they're going to fall behind. Um, and, and that's a great thing in my opinion. I, I think we should all be staying on top of that. Um, yeah, so that's, that's certainly one, one big trend in my opinion. Well, it's got, that's kind of the downside to a down economy is you get rid of Mm -hmm. like, it's, you know, folks that aren't prepared or well prepared and to maintain their business through the downtimes. That's Mm -hmm. the true kind of like definition of success. If you will, you got to see some downtimes, um, come out of that stronger. Right. So mm-hmm. absolutely. That is going to happen in ultra running. Once, once the, once everything cools off, yeah. you're going to see a lot of people, not just coaches, but other, other components of the marketplace as well, whether it's race management or equipment or whatever you, whatever you, whatever you're, whatever you're looking at, you're going to see a lot of those components that are taking advantage of favorable tailwinds. They're going to, struggle and or go out of business unfortunately so but that's just what happens when you go from an expanding marketplace to a flat marketplace is is a lot of those companies just end up going out of business right and every market as it matures will go through ups and downs if it's going to last at all right i i'll i'll jump in real quick on my trends i i think ai is going to be um a trend we're going to see and it'll be more of the budget the budget coaching option for people um, it's not gonna, it's not gonna replace our business, you know, cause it's, it's all about relationships and social and like custom and, and, and hearing and caring and really like speaking into someone's life and them, them, you know, it, you know, it's, it's half psychology and psychiatry too, sometimes, you know, a mm-hmm. coaching business and being a coach. And so I think you're not gonna be able to replace that with AI, but I think AI will give people who want some level of coaching or plan, um, a option for a budget. I think that, I think we're going to see that trend in the next five years, big time. But naturally when you start in any new endeavor, you're not going to say, Oh, I need to spend $500 a month on my new endeavor. You know, it's like, no, you know, 
I'm going to dabble in this, you know, like I'm 10 bucks a month $3. or 30 bucks a month, you know, or yeah, 45 like, I'll try bucks this a month. Out for 30, <laughs> 45 you know, and it gets you a year, 18 months into it. And you didn't really hit your goal or you plateaued and you know, like, Oh, to get to the next level, like I really need, you know, there's nothing like a human experience coach. So absolutely. AI will help that kind of entry level. If you will, AI will help the coach as well. You know, it's going to yeah. help the coach yeah. make faster, better decisions in the moment. Um, for a better quality service. Jason, thoughts? I'll, I'll wrap it up here. I've got two that I'm ac- actually working on. So once Uh-oh. again, I promise. I, ten years I, I promise full trade. I promise full tra- Yeah, no, I promise full trade. It's going to be quicker than 10 years <laughs> for that. I promise full transparency. So, you, you know, I'm going to deliver on that one. Uh, the first one is pinging off of Jeff is, is I, I am working on an AI coaching product. Um, I, I don't know like how it's going to get shaped quite yet, you know? Uh, it's very early stages, but it's something that uh, uh, then I'm going to invest time and resources in uh, to to, to kind of make happen because I do I do wholeheartedly believe that it's a transformational technology that will serve some part of the marketplace, and I want I want to be there when it happens and be a big part of that. Uh, the the second thing is something that I kind of want to turn on its head. Um, you know, I currently work with a number of uh, elite uh, trail and ultra runners, and my setup with them is is quite simple. I will coach you for free and I don't expect anything in return. I'm very, very clear about that. Whenever I, whenever, whenever I work with athletes, this is something that, that I take on. I spend out of the 40 athletes that I coach, maybe it comprises, you know, 10 or 12 athletes worth of free coaching that I deliver every single month that I could very easily fill with a paid coaching spot, but I just like doing it. I think it's good for, you know, marketing and, 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 and good for the entire ecosystem. But I do think that we're getting to a point within the elite and the professional athletes that they're going to have to start paying for coaching. And the the thing that I'm working, uh, and I'm this is not tomorrow. So for anybody who's like freaking out about their athlete sponsorship contracts, we're about to get into that season right now, and is starting to think about this. I don't think it happens tomorrow, but I do think it happens within the next few years, where the elite athletes can kind of command enough from their sponsorship obligations. And that the the ecosystem is kind of robust enough to where the coaches can start to they they can kind of charge what they're worth for it. So for, in my case, it would go from something to or from nothing to to something. But I'm going to take a new twist on it. Is is I'm I'm trying to work on a high performance uh, coaching model specifically within the sport of trail and ultra running. Um, I've talked about this in my podcast uh, b- uh, before. Solomon's uh, got this set up with their athletes but in essence it wraps all of the services that an athlete and especially an elite athlete might need into one cohesive system so right now it's up to the athletes to say i need a coach and i need a physical therapist and maybe i need a nutritionist and maybe i need a sports psychologist and there's no coordination or very little coordination amongst all those individuals unless the athlete kind of forces it. And I'm in this situation right now with a lot of the elite athletes that I work with where they have all of these different service providers and trying to, you know, trying to herd all of those cats, which I try to do as a head coach is, is, is very problematic. But when you can do it right underneath a high performance coaching model where it's kind of systematized and the athlete has access to all of these different things, orthopedics, sports psychology, nutrition, physical therapy, and coaching is just one of them and that team can act cohesively in the best interest of the athletes i think that that puts those elite athletes at a tremendous advantage as compared to 
people who don't have that type of service lined up for them. So that's, that's the second piece that I, I think is like a future part of coaching. And it's all a byproduct of the development of the elite athlete ecosystem right now, where everything's kind of coming together, where the competitive nature of the races are becoming tighter and tighter every year, the contracts are coming around so that they're just more high value and the athletes have to kind of like reinvest in them, in themselves. So I'm looking forward to trying to, trying to figure that, that piece out over the course of the next several months. Yeah. It's exciting to kind of see the fruition of the sport, if you will, growth and get to that next stage of of growth right so it's really exciting to see where that where that might end up and hopefully we do see that actually happen wow that was great that was in we depth. made it we made it to that the end awesome. of the list and if you still want more you can go to my podcast the <laughs> training peaks coach cast i stole this from jason i did it first i got it out live did it with a triathlon cycling coach and yeah so you see a different perspective from three other coaches you can go to that coach cast so thanks guys great to work with you it was awesome um i'm sure we helped a lot of folks out a lot of new businesses out there so let's lift the tide for everybody yes that's what we're doing thank you thanks dirk thanks yeah, dirk. Thank and you thanks guys. to you heather yeah thanks to you heather and jeff a lot as thank i've you. expressed uh an email beforehand i know it's not the most comfortable thing to pop the hood up and as the many no's that I got would kind of indicate, a lot of other people are are kind of are kind of feeling that. So I'm very appreciative of you guys being transparent in this because I do think it's good for everybody. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Cool. Thank Thanks. you. All right, folks. There you have it. There you go. Much thanks. And I am incredibly grateful for Dirk Veal for coming on the podcast to serve as host today for Jeff Browning and Heather Hart for being so open, honest, and transparent about how your businesses work. I realize that at times some of this stuff is uncomfortable to talk about, but hopefully by bringing it out all out in the open, we can all become better coaches, better business owners, better sole proprietors, whatever your kind of like lot in life is. If you are a coach or an athlete and you found this information interesting and you think that one of your training partners or friends would find this information interesting, or if they just happen to have a long run and need to fill their ears with something, hit the share button on your podcast player of choice. Share this with your training partners and anybody that you might find it interesting. That is the only way that we get this word out. As you guys all know, this podcast is not monetized in any way, shape, or form with advertisers. The only way that it, get that it gets monetized is just the sheer proliferation of all of the information out there. So I'm very much appreciative of you, the audience, want to hear this type of feedback and when you guys share it with your training partners and your running buddies. I have links in the show notes to both Heather's coaching website as well as Jeff's coaching website, as well as the rest of the links that I always include in the show notes. Y'all go and check that out if you are ever curious about either one of those two individuals. That is it for today, folks. And as always, we will see you out on the trails.